Hey guys, welcome to This Film Could Be Your Life. On uh, this week's episode, we're going to be discussing The Terminator from 1984. Uh, just as a brief forward, we do recommend you watch the movie. It probably makes the podcast a little more fun to listen to. So Mike, what is The Terminator about? Well, John, The Terminator is the jarring true life story of a con gone wrong. The year is 1984, L.A., and we're introduced to the sad, lonely teenage waitress Sarah Connor a needy, mentally distorted girl looking for love in all the wrong places. Well, things turn upside down when she is approached by two low-on-their-luck con artists looking for a quick score, seeking to catfish her with an insane tale, quite frankly created and written on a cocktail napkin over shots of vodka some night, a future apocalypse, cyborg assassins, and her being the mother of some half-baked future hero. Little did they know that she would believe them too deeply and kick off a harrowing tale of what happens when a bit latched on by the mentally unwell runs too long, gets too deep, is taken deadly seriously, and leaves no one involved unscathed. If you don't think that Netflix or someone will fund this movie, <laughs> this version of this movie, I think this is this is a great avenue for us. I honestly um, think I just happened upon my masterpiece, my future career. <laughs> This is it. You should quit your job. You should quit the church right now. I made that up on the uh, spot. <laughs> Welcome to This Film Could Be Your Life. I'm kind of not kidding. But... everybody welcome once again to this film could be your life a movie podcast where two friends take the movies that they love way too seriously i'm jonathan devine joined as always by mike overstreet hello and yeah we are talking about the terminator uh terminator is a 1984 action movie it stars arnold schwarzenegger as the terminator uh this is just the plot description from wikipedia by the way a cyborg assassin sent back in time from 2029 to 1984 to kill Sarah Connor, played by Linda Hamilton, whose unborn son will one day save mankind from extinction by hostile artificial intelligence in a post-apocalyptic future. Michael Bean plays Kyle Reese, a soldier sent back in time to protect Sarah. The movie was written and directed by James Cameron and was kind of the launching point for his career. It was also the launching point for Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, kind of his first huge starring role. It made $78 million against a $6.2 million budget, was a smash hit uh, that completely caught everyone off guard, which we'll also get into a little bit later. Mike, this is the first James Cameron movie that we're talking about, which is kind of nuts if you think about me anyways. I'm going to let you have your little soapbox, and I'm going to have mine. At least in terms of me, it's odd that we have taken so long to get to this director uh, but we start by talking about the history, or, or sorry, our history with the movie anyways. So Mike, what is your history with Terminator? And if you feel like it, what's your history with James Cameron? Mmm, 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 John. Oh, how I have longed for this moment. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just gonna I'm just gonna turn off my headphones for no, a little bit. Um, I'll just let you wax. I'll come back in in about a minute. I actually, so I think, I can't remember if I saw this or T2 first. 
And it's mm-hmm. kind of a similar deal with Alien and Aliens, which is interesting because we'll talk about those later too, I'm sure. Um, but I do believe that I saw T2 first. Uh, I do know that my brother being shown the first Terminator, this movie, at like the age of 10 was a big, <laughs> big problem uh, in our household. So it continues the theme of seeing these way too young. But I actually kind think of a recurring, uh, recurring narrative. It's but a, go it, on. Was, it was, it was off. I don't know how my mom kept falling for it. Um, <laughs> like my dad definitely told her that it wasn't that violent. And then she walked in on like the police shootout scene <laughs> and it's like, oh my God. Um, well, to be fair with a name like the Terminator, it's easy to believe yeah, that it's not yeah. that violent. of a movie. Absolutely. Absolutely. Got her. Um, but so I think I saw the second one first, probably in my early teens. And then I actually don't think I came back to this till I was like 15 or so. Um, my history with Cameron is actually largely positive in terms of when I was introduced to him. Um, I loved this movie, loved T2, and I loved The Abyss, which are the three of his movies that I were, I remember my dad showing me. Um, you know, Titanic was cool. Don't remember too much about my first time seeing that other than it had a nudity scene and that was a big deal. Um, I want to um, try to maybe interview my dad about how he handled the sex scene in this movie. Um, but, but yeah, so all that to say, you know, it was definitely something I saw. I was introduced to Cameron pretty young. I was introduced to some of his best work. I think I honestly think those three movies might be his best movies. Um, I'm surprised you're not saying aliens, by the way. I, oh, I, sorry. I meant to, I definitely saw aliens. Okay, also. Okay. Yeah. So it was That's like those what, I, was, four. I was a little confused because I was like, I'm sure Aliens has to be in there. Okay, yeah. Keep going. So Aliens, Terminator, Terminator 2, and The Abyss were kind of the my dad's favorite movies by him. So we saw those a lot growing up and I adored them. So my grievances with James Cameron don't come till later in his career. And we could talk about that when we get to him. <laughs> I'm not sure how much we can talk about that, to be honest, because this episode is purportedly about the Terminator. Oh, so, well. <laughs> so if we go too hard, because you guys have to realize that for five years now, Mike and I have had prob- maybe is Mike, is this our most recurring argument about yeah, Avatar? Probably. 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 Yeah. <laughs> and, and also, let's not dance around it. We're talking about Avatar. There is one movie. Yeah. That I think, I think is the I most think divisive movie between the two of us. To a limited degree, I'd also throw the Titanic into that bucket. Not very Certainly impressed. Certainly, I like Titanic. it more than you. Yeah, yeah, I think it's a great movie. Yeah. But so. Avatar is the central conversation point. That movie's trash, John. It's not good. Okay, um, it's an anyway. incredible movie. We're not gonna, we're not gonna <laughs> do that. We're not gonna do it. Um, <laughs> my history with Cameron, um, weirdly, I, I don't think the thing with James Cameron is a lot of his movies, despite the fact that they're marketed towards kids, um, especially his early ones, were very violent and very like yeah. intense. Yeah. So even as a kid, kids? I sort of, I honestly, T2 was, and it's kind of wild. That's you can alarming. go back and find like, <laughs> you can find like, like commercials with like action figures being marketed oh my gosh. for rated R. It was a different, it was a different time. And, you know, every now and then I think maybe they had something figured out in the nineties that we didn't, but at any rate, um, you know, it, because of that, I sort of avoided a lot of his movies and this has come up before where like as a kid, I knew that there was these movies that people talked about being so amazing, but I was just I, I was just knowingly very uh, sensitive, and 
but basically as soon as anyone described Terminator as being in any way horror, I was just like, cool, I'm not going to watch that. Yeah. I just, I was so easily scared of stuff as a kid that I was just, I was just a little tidy baby wimp essentially. But, uh, so I think if I, I'm pretty sure Terminator 2 was the first movie of Cameron's that I saw. And probably Titanic. I think I remember thinking Titanic was very long and only liking the uh, ship sinking, obviously. Yeah, yeah. And I remember being really into um, Terminator 2 for a little bit, too, as probably every teenage person is at some point um, after 1991. Um, as I've watched more and more of his movies as an adult i watched aliens and the abyss and terminator one and rewatched titanic and watched true lies and obviously saw avatar i essentially at some point realized that i just really 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 love him as a filmmaker um not as a person and frankly that's not even an interesting conversation to me i, I think people i don't know I, i've just never been very interested in that because you know, I, I used to have a, a teacher in one of my English classes that was like, eh, if you only read people that you liked, you'd have a very limited library. Yeah. And so sure. kind of going from there, I've just always just kind of hand waved that. There's obviously a limit to that. If someone's an egregious enough human being, it's like, yeah, maybe I won't engage in their art. But obviously, I don't think he's anywhere near that bad. And no. and certainly, uh, I just think his movies are incredible. I just think sure. the vision that he brings to large-scale spectacle filmmaking is literally unrivaled. I, there's just no competition. I actually want to even make a quick argument that of the, let's call, and, and I know I'm not defining it very well, but let's say spectacle filmmaker is a thing. I think if if we create that category, he is arguably the most consistent. He's certainly the most successful, but he's arguably the most consistent person because here's his film... Here's his filmography, okay? Piranha 2, which we're not Woo! quite going to count because he it. jumped in. No, nope, let's do it. The, he was the... Next um, episode. Special effects. He was the special <laughs> effects supervisor with the director quit. He jumped in halfway through. So let's move past that and say that he started, because he kind of did. He starts with The Terminator. That's his first movie. Yeah, yeah. The Terminator, awesome. Aliens, The Abyss. Terminator 2. I'm not skipping anything, by the way. These are the only movies he made. True Lies, Titanic, Avatar. Now, again, I know that a lot of people are going to say that's dropping off by the end. But still, like that is an insane run. That's a level of consistency, especially from spectacle filmmakers. You you and I talked about when we did E.T., like we think of Spielberg as being this amazing director, but Spielberg's got a lot of misses. He's got a lot of... A lot of times where it felt like he was just throwing it up against the wall. Um, Cameron never feels like that. Everything he does, he puts, you know, 150% in. And I'm not saying that all of those movies are like the best movie ever made. I would say maybe a couple of them are in the conversation. But all of those movies are really, really good at what they're trying to do. And I just think he understands, again, spectacle big movies better than essentially anyone else who's ever lived uh so yeah i love james cabard i'm ready to admit it i say that like i haven't been saying that for five years but still uh well yeah and i love this movie yeah and let me speak to james cameron just so we can just get this out of the way since we're already doing it um you know i i i think the the weird 
the weird elephant in the room is for me to acknowledge that I agree with you on pretty much everything you said, right? Yes. I mean, he is the greatest spectacle f- filmmaker who has. You can't see it, but I'm doing the Tiger Woods uh, fist, <laughs> fist bump thing right now. He's like, we got but it. I've never. We so can I've, stop the recording. I've, I just wanted I've that to never, be on tape. I have never disagreed with the idea that James Cameron, in my mind, is the greatest spectacle filmmaker who has ever lived, right? I think it's. Okay. It's unmatched. He is a technical genius. He's a true innovator, especially in terms of like craft on a big screen, in terms of bringing things to life. I mean, that's where him and Spielberg are almost unmatched in terms of innovation for a yeah. for the basically the coming of the blockbuster. Right. They are the ones who kind of set the benchmark, the high watermark of what a blockbuster even is in a lot of ways before at least we get to like the Marvelization of blockbusters today. Sure. Um, I think what impresses me about him and what I love about his earliest work, and when I say earliest, I generally mean everything but his documentaries and Titanic to a lesser degree, but definitely Avatar, mm. um, which also real quick highlights how bizarre of a filmmaker he is because he's just stopped making movies. And that makes him really yeah. hard to talk about because he already didn't make yeah. them often. And now he's hasn't made one in what, almost a decade? It's, it's and if, so- I mean, if you count the fact and he's only made one in 23 years. Yeah. Like so it's kind yeah. of, anyways, it's hard to talk about him, but his earliest stuff, you know, those movies, especially those movies I already mentioned Terminator, Terminator 2, Aliens, The Abyss. He is just a master in that era of his filmmaking career at balancing spectacle with these really big, interesting, unique ideas and stories that really other people with that kind of a budget and that kind of an ambition weren't trying to make, right? These movies yeah. are both unbelievable spectacles in terms of their actual physical elements and what the eye candy that they are, but they're also just really ambitious in terms of like the story they're telling. I mean, there's a lot of deep themes in the abyss. There's a lot of really cool themes in the Terminator movies. There's a lot of really cool themes in aliens. And that's kind of where we get to where I disagree with you because I'll be honest, (laughs) the Titanic to a degree, but especially avatar are just as good in terms of their spectacle nature, but quite frankly, they have nothing interesting, in my opinion, nor innovative to say in their actual stories. I mean, it's almost like when it gets to those movies, he's just like, oh, here's the side story about love or um, a half-hearted Native American slash environmental message. But what I'm really trying to do is just blow your socks off with the visuals. And it doesn't mean that they're bad. I just think that they are so deeply below one, his early standards and two, they're just uninteresting to me. Um, So I'm not going to, that's not really why I go to see films. I'm not trying to make an objective statement on them, but that's how I kind of read the end of his career. I can maybe, I don't accept that, but I I see where you're coming (laughs) from. (laughs) I would, my only counterpoint and, and after this, we probably should move on to talk about the Terminator, but my only counterpoint is and I won't even bother Avatar because that's I I understand I stand on shakier ground with that, but I honestly kind of thought the same way about Titanic for a really long time, and sometime two or three years ago I rewatched it and, and I actually came away thinking it was much better than I had ever given it credit for, hmm. and I started reading some some of uh, my favorite essayists and stuff people who wrote about it, and there was this and, and there was this one person who had this interesting thing where they were like. You know, Cameron stated that with Titanic, he wanted you to he wanted to make people feel the emotional weight of a tragic event on that scale because he had gotten so invested in the story of of the Titanic and he felt it 
profoundly emotionally. And he was like, I want other people to feel that. And so he made this admittedly very schlocky love story and, and crams it into the movie. But the thing about that is he was successful. Disagreed. That he was here. No, 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 no. He, he was successful from a populist standpoint. It's very rare for me to make it a populist argument. But seriously, like okay, I was reading Trump. this guy talking. I was reading this guy. Don't you dare! I was reading this guy talking, and he was like, "My cab driver, uh, when that movie came out, like like three months later, is in a cab, and the guy was like, uh, in like he had tears on his cheek because he had just come from seeing the movie for the fourth time." Yeah, and sure. my my aunt was like like couldn't get over it, and, and like talking about like all these people who don't care about movies probably, and certainly wouldn't have cared about the Titanic eighty years ago sinking, like felt this immense emotional response to it, and so it's like, ah, I, I just think that I just think you can't discount that, and I think that that is there's just no there's just that's a very difficult, and that in and of itself is a high aspiration, right? Of like making the public feel the tragedy of an event like that, especially 90 years later or whatever. Yeah. Um, and that's I mean, cool. And I get that. Cause I felt the same way, you know, about piranhas after piranha too. It okay. just didn't land with me. Let's, <laughs> let's move on. Let's move on. We're going to do <laughs> Titanic. Eventually avatar will probably be our last episode. And yeah, it'll just quit. end with us. I'm just done. Yeah, we'll just, we'll just quit. <laughs> I'm in the out. Of it. <laughs> Uh, but for now, let's move on and talk about what is a, a really incredible movie. And, I, and honestly, we haven't talked about it enough yet, so let's get into it. But uh, we're talking about The Terminator. The way we divide this episode, we talk about uh, why this movie works. Then we're going to go into maybe some things that hold it back. Uh, then we have some stray thoughts. And then finally, later in the episode, Mike and I have each prepared some essays diving deep into some tangent or something about the movie uh, to prompt discussion. But before all of that, we just need to talk about why this movie works. And this is a really great movie. And this was a movie that, um, you know, just to wrap up my history with it, I avoided for a long time because I thought it was going to be horrific. And some, in some ways it is, but mostly this is just a breathlessly effective action movie made on a stupidly low budget. Yeah. Um, in today's dollars, it would be somewhere between 10 and $15 million, it's which wild. if you don't Just know, crazy. if you don't know a lot about movies, you might think is a lot, but that's like literally nothing. That's literally it's like, an indie you film. Know, a Hallmark yeah. movie. Yeah. yeah a Hallmark yeah. movie costs more than that. I mean, yeah. and, and it executes all this stuff so well. So, so yeah, let's get into it. What makes this movie work? Um, Mike, why don't you go first, actually? Because, again, I keep being self-conscious about taking the mic from you on these occasions. So As what do you got? you should, John. Cool, cool. Um, yep, love that. <laughs> no. So what I always forget about this movie, and it's what stands out the most, and I don't want to talk about this too long, because actually my, my essay at the end is going to be about this, but I always forget that this is a slasher movie. And yeah. then it's like set in a sci-fi backdrop and not a sci-fi movie with some violent elements. Um, and I just always forget how good Cameron is and had the knack he has for making a sequel to a movie, but then making it an entirely different genre from like the original. So obviously mm -hmm. with this case, it's I always think of T2 because it's one I've seen more. And I'm always like, oh, yeah, Terminator 1 is going to be the same general action affair that that movie is and then i come back to this and you're like no this movie is straight up a john carpenter slasher film yes like the movie yeah. 
believes the Terminator is Michael Myers. It follows the same tropes. I always forget how much body horror is in this movie in terms of, you know, when he's heal- fixing himself and the eyeball oh and God. all that stuff. That scene's, that scene is still rough, by the way. Oh, We're going to get into effects that maybe have an age great later, but when yeah. he sticks the knife in his eye to... Yep. Oh, my God. <clears throat> uh, yeah. oh. But it's Very a good. really... It's like a super effective horror film. Um, and because of that, and the way that it uses slasher elements, especially how it rolls out slowly, um, essentially it sets up rules and then breaks the rules in a way that keeps you in this, like, WTF is going on space for a long time. It's just effective as a horror film. I mean, just let me breeze through these real quick, but a couple ones I noted, right? She's in a public space, so she must be safe. And then it's like, nope, Uzi spray down the entire club. Second, you're like, well, he got shot eight times with a sawed-off. Nope, he can't be killed, right? And then it's like, oh, nope, he's using a cop's voice in the car, right? It basically, and then you think you're safe because you're in a cop police station. And then, nope, he's Mm. killed all 30 cops, right? Oh, well, the semi exploded and he's on fire, so he must be dead. Nope, he's back up coming for you again. Like, every single part of that is so effective as a horror slasher genre because it just keeps you unsettled the entire time, and it keeps breaking mm-hmm. rules that you think should be firmly established in a normal universe, right? Um, and I don't yeah. know. Sorry, that was kind of all over the place. But those are the kind of... That was the big thing I caught this rewatch was how effective it is as a horror slasher. No, I, I, I'm there for all of that. I also am wary of going too deep because I don't want to step on your, on your essay, but I... You know, people may or may not know, too, he was explicitly inspired by Halloween, and and Mm -hmm. he explicitly stated that he wanted to make a... He actually said it was a new genre, which Bike and I have talked about is maybe a little pretentious. It's like, no, you're combining horror and sci-fi. That's cool, but it's not a new genre. Also, Alien came out, like, already, so come on. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly, exactly. So it's like, well, okay. Uh, But you're right. I, I think that this is the, you know, it takes all of those tropes, and, and in a way grounds them and amplifies them. And yes. I think that's the cool thing that he really hit on for someone like me who who likes who actually likes Halloween and thinks it's a great movie. But that movie there's a certain um you, you know there's a magical element to it. Yeah. There's a fantastical element to it. This movie is obviously unrealistic, but you can kind of buy it. You can, you can you can just get your brain to the point of of being like what if I was Sarah Connor and someone sent a unstoppable machine back in time to kill me. What would I do? And it's one of the great examples because those kinds of movies work when you keep thinking, oh, I would do what she's doing and it keeps not working. Yes. And that's the whole movie is just yeah. the escalation of, oh, well, I'll, I'll do this to be safe and then it doesn't work. The thing is still coming for you. Oh, I'll go here to be safe and it doesn't work. The thing is still coming for you. It's one of the best movie monsters ever made. Yeah. Um, Amen. Which is which is kind of my first point, actually, and may or may not be treading the same ground, so I'll just go through it quickly, but I wrote just the idea of the Terminator. Just, and, you know, the, the subsequent sequels played with it a lot, and we'll talk about the sequels more, I think, because I I struggle with them in terms of, I think this movie actually, on its own, is better without any follow-up whatsoever. Um, sure. But... The follow-ups, at least one of them, was really amazing. So it's sort of like, well, you know, maybe we're okay with that. But but if you think about this movie on its own and you imagine that there was no sequels, that Arnold was never a good guy, that, you know, we never got really complex into the timeline of all this stuff and blah, blah, blah. 
The Terminator is just terrifying. It is yeah. just primally horrific, horrific, like imagining this thing. I, and I wrote this, the speech that Reese gives to Sarah. It can't be reasoned with. It can't be bargained with. It doesn't feel pity or remorse or fear. And it absolutely will not stop ever until you are dead. And that is that so encapsulates what makes the movie work. And you already said it, but just the way that we keep doing these escalating scenarios. And I think, you know, the effects we're going to get to later, but the first time you watch it, when that metal skeleton rises up from the oh, uh, it's awesome. on fire, yeah. it's yeah. like, it, it's like every Michael Myers re reincarnation, like amplified to a thousand. Yeah. <laughs> cause you're, cause again, you're just like, oh my God, they cannot kill this thing. They cannot kill this thing. Um, it's incredible. And it's it's what you were saying. It, it just understands that horror slasher genre. It is a slasher movie, but it takes enough of a different turn and it adds enough new stuff and changes enough things that, you know, you're just completely in and you're just, you're, you're there for the entire ride. Well, um, yeah, yeah. And I kept... Yeah. I mean, last thing is I, I really did on this rewatch keep coming back to the movie Alien, which we've done on this podcast. But one of the things that impressed us in Alien was how deeply unknowable basically the danger was because the because the monster is unknowable. Right. You kind of learn it yeah. can do things as it does something to kill somebody and how just yeah. horrifyingly unsettling and disturbing and just imagining, like you said, being Sarah Connor and experiencing something that adaptable and that unknowable is a nightmare. And that's, I, I kept feeling the exact same way in this movie. And I think that's just a testament to him as James Cameron as a director and as the script in terms of how it reveals those things. Like there is something so deeply unsettling when he first uses the cop's voice in the car because it's very much a, oh, crap, I didn't know it could do yeah. that, right? And then obviously the scene where Sarah calls her, calls her mom is actually just a super unsettling scene. Um, and it's him using the mom's voice because he killed her. But, but yeah, there's just something about this film that's constantly revealing another layer of indestructibility and yeah. that you didn't know until basically it's going to get you killed. And that is such an effective element. It requires good writing. It requires good imagination, like you're saying. And then just a, a very strong understanding of the genre that you're playing off of. And I think that yeah. all fits in this movie. So oh, I think and that's then, my number one point yeah. for sure. I agree. I agree. I think it's it's as a concept and an execution of a concept. It's just superb. Um, getting into the execution of the concept a little bit, uh, you know, the Terminator works because of one person as well, which is Arnold Schwarzenegger. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, it. here's what's weird, Mike, though, because this is obviously his first insanely iconic role. And, and he is incredible in this movie. What's weird is I was thinking while watching it, I feel like this role is only 60% of why he became the biggest actor in the world. Because the physicality is there and... You know the the there there is genuine acting chops there too, but in later movies he has a charisma that is completely absent from here, and yeah. on, on purpose. Um, yeah. The only reason I bring it up is because having watched his later movies first, because we were both born after the fact, it was kind of scary going back and watching him be in no way charming, 
There's yeah. zero charm in this movie for Arnold Schwarzenegger. It is just that intense physicality, that that way that he talks, that way that he says things, that he this coldness, this icicleness. I, I'm of the camp that Arnold Schwarzenegger is actually a very good actor. And I think this movie is a great example of that because again, he is himself actually a very charming person, but that in no way comes across here. He is just terrifying. And and much has been made too of the fact that like other people, because again, it became this whole franchise with all of, you know all of these iterations and stuff. And you watch other people, even physically dominating people, try to do the Terminator vibe. Yeah, you know, like you the can. look and the yeah, and the yeah. and it and it's crazy how often it fails. Um, it's it's crazy how often it just looks like kind of like someone just sort of stared ahead in a weird way, and yeah. being uncanny but not in a very effective way. In this movie, he is all of those things. He is uncanny, inhuman, terrifying, and icy. And you accept all of it. Like, you buy it when you watch him do it. Um, it's easy. It's so easy to understand why, even though he's the villain, he is the breakout person from this movie. You think of this movie and you think of Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's so strange going back and reading you know, that they were trying, the first script had it as a normal guy because the idea was that mm. it was supposed to be, they can blend in with a crowd, right? <laughs> can I actually, can I interrupt you and speak to that real quick? Because I have a really tremendous quote from James yeah, Cameron talking about that. Um, because that is actually a huge plot hole in this movie. Um, yeah. So so for the listeners, you know, the idea of the Terminator, in universe, the Terminators exist because they look like a human so they can infiltrate one of the human settlements and then kill people. So James Cameron at one point in an interview said, casting Arnold Schwarzenegger as our Terminator, on the other hand, shouldn't have worked. The guy is supposed to be an infiltration unit, and there's no way you wouldn't spot a Terminator in a crowd instantly if they all look like Arnold. It made no sense whatsoever. But the beauty of movies is that they don't have to be logical. They just have to have plausibility. If there's a visceral cinematic thing happening that the audience likes, they don't care if it goes against what is likely. So I just think that speaks to that, right? That's oh, like bingo. This That's is, actually almost. He, I was just gonna say, yeah, that that he in this movie is is visceral. He is he is a yes. force. He's a presence on screen. So you kind of don't care that it doesn't really make sense if you think about it, and you don't care that you know all these little things about it that that maybe break down. It just works, and it's just yeah you're just there for it. Well, cause, and that's what I was going to say is it's such a good choice because and it, it conveys how smart James Cameron is where he understands that cinematically. It, yeah. There's the trade off of believability, but to make this movie effective, I have to make someone feel something. And it is such yeah. an interesting comparison to T2 when he has the CGI and the funding to make a more complex movie and you do see how effective it is in the villain in that movie because he's able to make him feel unstoppable for different reasons, for technical yeah. reasons, making him liquid, right? Making him be able to go through walls, shape his body. But when you don't have access to that, this is such a brilliant casting because, yeah, yeah, I can't do anything to make this guy look different than he does. We don't have the money for it. Thank God Arnold Schwarzenegger exists because by himself, he is perfect for this role. He is imposing. He is solid. Yeah. He is like a triangle with legs, like turned upside down. And I mean, like when he is introduced in the beginning, it's so good when he comes up yeah. and he's, well, I mean, the, the nudity was unneeded, <laughs> but he comes up naked 
And then he punches the guy through the chest, and you're like, yeah, I buy that. Like, I buy that this this actor yeah. could punch someone and go right through his chest with his fist. Like, I believe that. And there is something visceral. That is a great word. But anyways, I just wanted to once again shout out James Cameron, because I do think that someone could have gone and honed in on their script on the idea and been like, no, it has to be a normal person. And without the right budget, I think this movie could have been a far less effective yeah. movie. And to make that call to be like, no, it's how it makes people feel that matters the most. And I don't yeah. have the the technical abilities right now to do that with a slim, normal looking guy. So we're going to go all in the other direction. I just think yeah. that's brilliant. It, you know, it's funny because wording it that way, it's almost like bowing to impressionism over over realism. Right. Yeah. It's yeah. It's acknowledging like, you know, people don't pe- people don't enjoy a movie with their brain. They do it with their gut. Yeah. And so maybe the idea is cool of like, oh, it's a, it infiltrates things or whatever. But what you, what matters, what's going to make it land is the is that gut reaction you have when you see that thing walking at her. Yep. And you're just like, oh, my God, this is well, it. She's going to die. Even like in the, the small ways where in the second one, because he's liquid metal and he gets shot with the shotgun, they're able to put the holes in him. Right. And then the holes yeah. close up and you're like, whoa, the, I can't. Like, he can't be killed. In this one, if you have some skinny dude and he starts getting unloaded on with a sawed-off in the bar, I'm just going to feel like that looks stupid that he's not flinching. But when yeah. Arnold takes a shotgun shell on the stomach and doesn't <laughs> flinch, just keeps I'm going. just like, oh, yeah, that checks out. Holy crap, these people are dead. You know what I mean? Exactly. It, yeah, it, yeah, it's perfect. It's just perfect. Well, and, and I, I, I jumped on that emotion of, oh, my God, they're doomed. Just like you think that constantly when you watch the movie the first time, especially and unfortunately nowadays it's like everyone kind of knows the story, so it's, it's it would be hard to find someone who really was watching it blind. But yeah. if you are, and I'm pretty sure I kind of, I guess I wasn't because I'd seen T two, but I don't know. I, I just feel like even watching it knowing that, I just kept feeling like, oh my god, how are they going to kill this? They just can't. I just don't understand how this is even remotely fair. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's it's just incredible. I'll actually shout out to, to what you were talking about. Two quick scenes. One is even slightly before when you introduce to him, even slightly before he punches that one dude through the chest. Like even just when he stands up and walks and looks over L.A. Yeah, that's a shot that's iconic. That to what you were saying, if you have someone who looks different, just doesn't land the same way. Yeah, it's iconic because he looks like Arnold Schwarzenegger because. He's this physically imposing thing. And when he looks over and scans over the entire sprawl of Los Angeles, that's just an incredible shot. The other one I was thinking in line with what you were saying, it's just all presence. Um, one of my favorite scenes, though, the entire police shootout is the Ugh. police station shootout is yes. incredible. Yeah. But the way it starts when he just walks in and what you were saying, you know, even though you've seen him do all that stuff with his arm and his eye at that point, when he walks in, he is just Arnold Schwarzenegger with sunglasses on. You know what I mean? Like it's yeah. there's nothing else happening, but you still feel the the gravity change uh, with that person. When you know the Terminator walks in, it says to the guy, "What does he say? I'm a friend of Sarakana's." Or I think <laughs> it's just, "I'm looking for Sarakana." <laughs> and you're just like, and and you think, how is this cop not like, hey? Wasn't there yeah. a dude killing a lot of Sarah Yeah, Connors? yeah, yeah. We can come to <laughs> that that later. It's not good. Anyways, <laughs> anyways. Um, it's incredible, and it's just it just works so well as, as an actor role and as a physical as a physicality. Uh, yeah, I just I just love it so much. Um, 
moving on, a couple things. I mean, these may or may not be quick, but I talk about pace a lot. This movie might be the prime example of that, just mm, because yeah. from from Tech Noir on, so the shootout in the Tech Noir bar um, on, it kind of just never lets off the gas pedal. Yep. Um, just a long chase. When it scene. does, it's great. Yeah. And, and when it does, it's very smartly inserted because it's when you need a little bit of a breath and or you need a little bit of exposition. Or you um, need like a really explicit and bizarre love making scene. <laughs> <laughs> that did kind of come out. We'll, we'll, I'm sure we'll have thoughts on that as we keep going. But, uh, you know, besides those little, those feel like, I mean, I said it like a, a, a slight breath. Like yeah. you, you just get to catch your breath before the screaming starts again. And that is so effective. Like even, and this is essentially an old movie, right? This is well over, this is approaching 40 years old. That yeah. can't be true. Oh, that is true. It is true. Yeah. It's bad. Mike, we're getting old. We're dying. <laughs> the Terminator oh, no. will outlive us all. I just, I just, oh my gosh, I can't handle that. But Bottle that rate. existential crisis and get back to it, John. Okay. Okay. Um, this is an old movie, and yeah. it doesn't feel like it at all. I think. No. I think again. Once you get past that that shootout in the bar, it just does not stop, and that is one of my favorite things in movies. Um, I don't know if you have anything on that. Yeah. Well, it actually goes back to the previous point I made about the breaking rules and creating a sense of safety just to destroy it, because it is nonstop except for the two parts where it does slow down. Think about it. They go into the police station and that oh, yeah. is the place of safety of all all places of safety. And it sets that up just for literally the most jarring. Oh, my God, you're never safe moment in the whole movie. Yeah. But then the other one is when they're holed up in the hotel. And I actually think that's a brilliant slam on the brakes, like little perfectly timed window because it sets up when the dog starts barking and the dogs yeah. are the, can notice in the terminator. That's such a chilling moment, and then it's just, boom, right back to terror from that point forward. Yeah. So both of those, even even after it starts really going full speed, it still shows Cameron's ability, in terms of a master of pacing, to get that, like, oh, I can actually use the slowing down as a way to make an even more jarring, like, acceleration again in about five minutes, right? Yeah. Um, and I just think that's brilliant. It's actually what makes One. this movie, in so many ways, stand up over the second one. Because this is a sure. clean 90 minutes, and that is really all the amount of time I need to spend with this story, right? Yeah. Um, no, yeah exactly. no fat, no filler. It's perfect. And, you know, there's this famous quote from um, Hitchcock where he says, you know, if you have a scene where a bunch of people are playing cards and then it blows up, that's a surprise, but it's not suspense. If you have a scene where they're playing cards, but at the beginning of the scene you show a bomb under the table ticking down. That is now suspense. Yeah. And I think about that hotel scene because what happens um, pretty early on is when she does, she gives the call to her mom's cabin and you mm -hmm. see him talking as her mom, um, which also, by the way, just real quick, very trusting of the audience because we get to put together ourselves. We see him look through the her contacts and find her mom's cabin. And then we see her talking to what she thinks is her mom. And then we see the Terminator in the cabin talking with her mom's voice. And it doesn't say anything. Actually, we actually yeah. never return to that plot point again. But you put together everything of, oh, my God. He killed her mom. Okay, and he knows where they are. Oh, my God. And, and suddenly you start, you know, you have that tension. 
So you're sitting in that whole scene, even as they're uh, even in the the respite, let's call it. Yeah. You're sitting there in suspense. You're sitting there. Oh my god! At any moment, this is going to end. And you're right. When the dog starts barking, you're like, "Here, it's it's happening again. We're back. It's starting up." Um, yeah, it's incredible. And you're right. A, a quick hour and a half. Um, not actually a trait that Cameron would display in the rest of his career, but at least in no. this movie, he kept it. <laughs> it's a, it's he a kept shame, it brief. But... It's a shame. That was a shame. I, you know what? I love James Cameron. I, I will actually agree with you that he could have used, he could have, he could have chopped some of his later movies a little bit. I'll, I'll agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, somehow we haven't explicitly talked about the action of this movie yet, but suffice it to say, this is an incredible action movie. And yeah. all of these points of why this movie works need to be considered also in the context of, 10 to 15 million dollars in 2021 yeah and it's incredible what i actually wrote word for word was how do these car chases feel so good and marvel has an infinite budget and makes their car chases feel so lame and 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 (laughs) clinical yeah Uh, you and i don't engage that much marvel bashing i actually like marvel movies but yeah it is true you watch this movie and you're like Oh my God! All of those scenes, like the we are, we've been talking about the police shootout so much, but the police shootout and the in the tech noir, and again, all of these car chases, and it's just so good, and it's so, and and you know, the word visceral keeps coming up too, but you're just you're on the edge of your seat. It's just all feels yeah. so gritty and real, and and you know, I, I think about there's like this one shot where. Um, one of the cars in the chase, I think the Terminator's car just rams into another car. And of course he's the Terminator. So he just backs up and keeps going, but it looks real because it kind of is real. Cause that was the only way they could do it. It's just so well made in that sense. And, and so well put together. Um, the action is just incredible, I guess. And, and again, made with essentially an infinitesimal budget. Um, it's just, it, it's virtuosic. It's incredible. Yeah. I mean, I don't really have much to say other than, um, and I think I, I'm stealing this from the Rewatchables, which is a podcast you and I listen to. But they made a great point, which is like the semi-truck scene at the end of this movie is as good as the one in The Dark Knight. And the one in The Dark Knight was probably made for the same budget as this entire film. And you're <laughs> yeah, just like, yeah. dude, it's impressive. I don't really know what else to say about it other than he really knows how to draw every penny, every cent he can out of his technical budget. And it, the fact yeah. that it holds up you know, 40 years later as still being thrilling. This is where we, we talked about this with aliens. We, we hint at it with jaws, which we'll do one day, but like where those movies go off the rails is when you actually have to like, and this one has a moment of this too. Don't get me wrong. But when you get into like the action set pieces, a lot of the times that's where like they age poorly. And the fact that this movie's action doesn't age poorly. You just can't say enough glowing stuff about James Cameron for that fact. Yeah. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Um, honestly, my only la- my, my last big point of why it works is just the music, and it's all <laughs> all all to say it's a what? Go on. <laughs> don't tell me. Don't no, tell no, me. No, no, we'll go. We'll go. We'll. I'll talk. Don't do it to me. You go first. <laughs> the music's incredible. It's yeah. it's it's pulling off of a um, you know it, it's kind of like a Halloween riff again. It's got those synths and stuff, but but that like. Cha 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 cha. Yeah, that little yeah, yeah. rhythmic da, da, thing. Da, 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 da. Yeah, that da, comes da, back da, da, da. in all the movies. I just think it's so great. I think that yeah. encapsulates the sensation of an unstoppable machine walking at you. Right? Absolutely. Where and every time that it, it returns to that rhythm, 
I'm just there. And I honestly, I don't know if this is what you're, I'm, I'm, already, I'm like pre-preparing a defense, but <laughs> even like that little melody line, da, 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 da. That also I think is great because it's almost like there's something melancholic about it. And there is something kind of melancholic about this story because it's all pre- precipiced on, you know, this future where humanity is nearly driven to extinction. Uh, so yeah, I think it's great, Mike. That's my last point for what makes this movie work. Do you I, have I, any points? <laughs> I mean, I hate the sense stuff. I hate the melody. Okay. I just okay. hate it. Like, okay. I was like, this is eighties garbage. Um, I just need to say you are too entrapped in, <laughs> in a war of aesthetics. You can't see past that. It sounds a little different from music you listen to now. It's yeah. I need not I needed a more Munford and Sons, just some banjo coming in, some hopeless wanderer. This is the closest um, I've ever come to walking off this show. I'm just going to say it. No. I'm going to so say it, it. It really hit me in the same way that um, Blade Runner did, where the synth sure. in that movie is so perfect for the aesthetic. And in this movie, the da-da-dun-da-dun is so unbelievably perfect at capturing that visceral thing he wants me to feel. But just like in Blade Runner, when the saxophones really take you out of the aesthetic, I just generally felt the kind of, yeah, the synth melodic background noise that he uses in a lot of scenes, especially when it picks up. I, I, It just did not make me feel what I thought I was supposed to be feeling in a scene. I think mm-hmm. I'm just judgmental of the 80s, so I totally own that. I, so, I genuinely think that. That is my actual fine. response. That is fine. That it just didn't work I, for me. <laughs> Fair enough. You, uh, we'll, we'll disagree. You're you're yeah. wrong, but that's okay. Yeah, that's okay. Um, yeah. I got a couple quick ones if you want me just to knock them out. Yeah, go go, um, go for it. I we we totally moved off the cast too quickly. I do want to shout out Linda Hamilton in this movie. Yeah. Um, I always forget that she's supposed to be like 18, which I think is like a really good choice for really ratcheting up the fear and the confusion vibes of the movie. Um, I'm actually not as into michael bean in this movie as other people are i don't think he's bad but i don't always know what he's doing let me just leave it at that i gotta Um, tell you mike uh i agree and i I actually agree so strongly that it actually comes up down in what doesn't work which maybe let's wait on that because that's closer that's closer to where i would put him to but linda hamilton goes in the the, what works for me i think she does a great job in this movie she she captures the because I often think of T2 first, I forget how innocent she acts in this movie. And I yeah. actually think she pulled the fact it's kind of like Sigourney Weaver between Alien and Aliens. The fact that mm-hmm. she makes such a strong transformation between the two movies and the fact that they hint at it in the last scene of this movie. And you actually do pick up from that last scene. Oh, this girl is going through a transformation by which she will become an action hero. I actually really thought she pulled that off pretty well. Yeah. All within one movie. So just wanted to shout her out. I don't know if you have any thoughts on Linda Hamilton or not. No, I, I, I'm completely there. We have to, we maybe need to back off praising Cameron too much, but I, I will say it is cool watching this movie that, because I think you're right. You see her change over the course of the movie. Yeah. Yeah. She is a dynamic character and you buy that by the end, she has become a survivor and a I will do whatever it takes where yes. at one point in the movie, she is a, she, you know, she is terrified and, and you see her work through that. And that's really cool. And yeah, I guess I just agree. She does a, she does an amazing job. Um, and a lot of the, it's worth noting a lot of the smaller actors do 
pretty good jobs too. Um, yeah, you know, I mean they're mostly Lance Henriksen, the playing stere- stereotypes of cops smoking cigarettes that are maybe yeah. eight days old or whatever. But but sure, a few stereotypes in this movie. Yeah. Uh, but again, we'll we'll save that. We'll come to them later. later. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um. So yeah, my last point is I was just gonna shout out the the script in a lot of ways, and I don't necessarily mean the dialogue as much as I mean that the way that the universe is limited in a lot of ways, yeah. I actually think, I mean, I am, I love sci-fi that doesn't try to explain itself fully. Like I really just want you to give me morsels of the expanded universe and tell me them in convincing ways. And I will believe you every time. I think a lot of yeah. like bad sci-fi just tries to lay out how everything works instead of giving little nuggets that we can kind of work with like dogs spotting the terminators and yada 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 and i think when this movie leans into that overarching mystery with some hints it is at its best um and i also think the script does a really good job slow playing the plot like how it slowly reveals why her name being sarah connor is important as he slowly starts to kill off these other sarah connors right that's a very that's a much longer section than i remembered and that's really effective um just setting up a central mystery and then I love, I always forget this, I love that they don't inform you that Reese isn't another bad guy until 30 plus yeah. minutes into the film. That is yeah. such, such, such a good writing mechanism in terms of story. Because it's always like, oh man, yeah, they don't even let you know that he's not just another hunter <laughs> for a long time. And that's great. Yeah. I think it's really cool. So I just want to shout out that script. It's effective, my I man. totally agree. This is a weird, um, it may or may not be a tangent, but but this is a weird thing that I, I keep thinking in the last two days as I've been thinking about this movie. I keep thinking about Looper for some reason. Mm. And, uh, you know, a lot of plot points are kind of similar and the way it talks about its world is similar. Uh, but in, in terms of this point, I actually think, I, I actually like Looper, but I do think it would have really benefited that movie to be more like this movie in terms of showing you much, much, much less, which is ironic because that movie was famous for showing you not that much, but yeah, almost every sci-fi movie would be better off not trying to explain itself more. Yeah. Period. Yeah. I mean, I just firmly believe that. Yeah. And that's why I think about like with Looper and you're right with a lot of sci-fi movies, but with Looper, I think like there was a lot of cool stuff that I wish I had been able to just come to on my own. Yeah. Um, that instead was sort of shoved into my face. And so then in the theater, I was like, oh, that's cool. And then I kind of just, you know, didn't think about it. And you're right. I think like a movie like this, which, you know, arguably because of limitations, because of budget and stuff, just couldn't show you that much more. But that works so well in his favor. Um, it is very, you know, it, it does leave a lot to the imagination, but that's that's really powerful, actually. I think that that has a greater hold on you watching it that you don't get to see all of this other stuff that that they could have got into so yeah uh so yeah yeah i'm i'm, I'm with you uh why don't we take a short break and then we'll come back for what maybe holds this movie back and some stray thoughts Hey, everybody, welcome back. Uh, in this next part of the podcast, we talk about what maybe holds this movie back uh, from working as well. Uh, Mike, wh- wh- what do you got? Actually, it kind of relates to the last point. So I think largely this movie is excellent at hinting, not showing at the entire universe. I actually don't think the flashbacks work super well for me. Um, do you do you mean flash 
forward. Forwards. Oh my gosh. Yes. Yeah. Time is a flat circle. <laughs> yeah. The flash forwards. I mean, I think there's too many of them. Uh, and then this will get into a point that I'm sure we'll dive into later about the effects of this movie, but they also just aren't very visually effective in a lot of ways because of budget reasons. So I mm. just was kind of like, I feel like apart from maybe one, we could have done without almost all of them. And, uh, yeah, go on. I'll one up you slightly. And I have really struggled to, because, you know, memory is a, is a fickle thing and I cannot remember if this was a version of the movie, a script, or if this was like a fan thing I read, but I've thought sometimes that in in, me, I don't know. I'm not going to, ultimately I'm not going to second guess James Cameron. And ultimately this is a very successful movie, but I sometimes wonder if this movie wouldn't be more effective if they had removed all scenes of future earth. Not going to lie, John. I was going to yeah. say that, but I was trying to be diplomatic. I I, I actually kind of detected 100% that. 100% believe that. I was, <laughs> I, was, I, was speaking, I, was, I, was, I was speaking to that slightly because, because I do think that there is maybe a sense of if all of that was totally mysterious, yeah. and if all of that you just had no sense, you only had to go off what Reese tells you, I kind of think that would be more effective, and I kind of think that would land a lot stronger. Um, I also think, and, and this is getting maybe even further down this road, I even recall reading a thing where it was ambiguous, like like you never even see them arrive, the yeah. Terminator and, and Reese. Like, you you know, you start with just them searching for Sarah Connor. And until the Terminator starts being roboticness and, and surviving gunshots and stuff, you don't even have an indication that any of what they've told you is true. Um Again, I can't remember if that's just something I read or if that was like an early plot or early version of the script. But either way, I, I do think there might be something missed there. And, yeah. and certainly I think, you know, the future stuff is like it, it just doesn't add anything, I guess, is what ultimately yeah, I would say. 100%. And maybe even take some stuff away from the movie. So two points. First is I actually think that sounds like a dope movie. Not filling you in Doesn't at all. Doesn't that sound great? I, oh my gosh. That's I've the kind of movie that, yeah. that you make for Mike Overstreet. I do understand having their introduction at least because it is trying to be a blockbuster or a wide, widely accessible movie. And sure. I do think letting you know right off the bat that these people actually are from the future or robots or whatever um, is probably helpful for a wider audience. It's not as just like frustrating for the average person. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. As someone who wa- would love to watch like a cult classic that no one saw sci-fi movie <laughs> that sounds great <laughs> like that sounds great to what me what an but interesting I... <laughs> alternate universe where this yeah. movie makes like 15 million cameron keeps making small movies i think eventually he has to become big just because he's too good at it yeah, yeah. but that is a weird thing to think but but sorry keep going but yeah so my second point though is this is the one the the flash to the future scenes are the one part of the movie where he doesn't seem to show the understanding of I can't do this with the budget and the technology I have. So I just shouldn't like everywhere else in the film. He seems to have a pretty clear understanding of when to not try to do things that just aren't possible in this movie. When it goes to the future, I feel like he just loses touch with that entirely. Like his ambition and his desire to be like, this is just the movie I wanted to make. So I'm going to make it whether I can do it well or not seems Mm -hmm. to go out the window because those scenes look bad. They just look fake. They look horrible and, on an effects side, right? Sorry. And like 
to be as charitable as possible, I, I do watch them and think I am kind of impressed given how little money yeah. you had that you did shoot this future war scene, but it does stick out like a sore thumb. It is yeah. very much like, oh yeah, that is crazy fake. That is so, so outside of anything that looks real that I'm like, uh, eh, okay. It doesn't maybe land that well. Yeah, man, um, the lasers. Oh my Lord. Uh, <laughs> sweet Jesus. Um, what, but... and what I think of is like, it's so clearly the, the Matt, uh, comp- composite in or, or you know it looks like a screen behind them with yeah. the ro- big robots yeah. as they're yes. as they're walking and again kind of cool on the budget but uh, maybe it doesn't land i was going to mention too you, you may be more right than you realize in terms of talking about his restraint in this movie um because i don't know if you know he actually first envisioned this movie where two terminators were sent back and one of them was liquid metal yeah uh yeah. which as you know, is is the plot of Terminator 2. But when he went to write it, he realized that the effects were nowhere near the point where he could do that. So he decided to make it one human sent back and one Terminator sent back, yeah. the, the not liquid metal one. So that's a great example of what you're talking about. He just kind of shelved that idea and came back to it 12 years later. Um, but yeah, you're right. Most of the movie demonstrates pretty incredible restraint, but that scene is very much like, I just really wanted to do the future war thing. And you think, yeah. well, cool, but eh, maybe it wasn't there yet. And, yeah. you know, that's okay. But And, and that um, kind of is a good tangent into what didn't work about this movie, which has nothing to do with failure. Um, it's just that the budget and time in which it made hamstringed, I think, a lot of what Cameron wanted to do. And I think that shows up, obviously, with the flash forwards. But even, like, you know, the scene where Arnold takes out his eye, it's a pretty clear yeah. animatronic, you know. When it I switches, do... there's a couple shots of, of the, the dummy face that are just yeah. like, Oof. yeah, you're, you're just like, oh, that is not real. And then it, and then the next cut the ne- or the next uh, shot cuts to like Arnold as though you think that's the same person. And I'm yeah. like, yeah. it's clearly not. Like even as a kid, I was like, that's just two different people that's just a, a puppet and then arnold and you're acting you are acting like you think i'm gonna think they're the same thing yeah when it, and it's Those so obvious out. like when he comes out as the exoskeleton that this is just one of those things again that was wrong time not enough money because that actually goes back to the future scene too anytime the robots have to move it looks bad because that's the hardest yeah. part to recreate with the technology they have Creating a non-moving animatronic, they're actually, I mean, it's obviously not Arnold, it's still rough, but it's not as bad as when the robot stops moving at the end, (laughs) or anytime they go to the future, and you see these things that are, like, supposed to be these imposing machines with lasers, and it's just like, oh my gosh, this looks stupid, right? So, I just want to say, like, that's not, there's no blame in that, but I do think T2 is the movie he wanted to make in terms of effects, and you can just tell at various moments in this film that he can't do it yet. And it's a little jarring and it's a little distracting and it's noticeable 40 years later, but again, no one's fault. Yeah. Um, I will say, and, and I know I can be a fanboy, so I'll, you know, take this. I, I, I am taking this with a grain of salt for myself, but the the cyborg skeleton at the end does not look very real. Um, that is true. And the motion's really weird. In a, in a very strange way, and I, I don't think you'll meet me here, but in a very strange way when I watch it, though, it's so unreal that it kind of goes all the way around the bend to become effective again because it feels so nightmare-ish. You know what I mean? Like, like there's we, we step so firmly into unreality that 
when I watched that scene, like like actually when watching that scene younger, that was the most uncomfortable scene to me. That was the most in a weird way terrifying scene to me because I was like, this is now like actually something from a dream. This is actually something that that you know doesn't even it, it's so uncanny and it's so unreal that it, it feels feverish almost. I don't know how to describe it. Um, you, you actually, it reminds me a lot, a lot of 80, 80s movies do this, and a lot of them make me uncomfortable. It reminds me a lot of the effects in Beetlejuice, sure. uh, which is a weird connection, but also stop motion, also you know, very fake looking things. But the fakeness almost makes them worse to me, right? Like almost makes them more like I feel uncomfortable. Um, yeah. Hard to describe. I, I can accept gonna... that that's just me. Uh, yeah i'm not gonna meet you there i think with something like beetlejuice this is the beetlejuice podcast um we things like gross out i feel that way about sometimes yeah Um, things that are mystical i can feel that way about it i think in a movie that is trying to make it feel so viscerally real in a lot of ways that's actually like the moment of relief for me where i'm like oh yeah this is fake (laughs) like you know what i mean um i don't have to be scared of that that's yeah yeah yeah, i I accept that i accept that um we're never doing Beetlejuice. I hate that movie. Okay. Yeah, that's fine. Um, <laughs> we'll do it after Miles, Vertical actually, Limit. Yeah, great. That'll be our one-two <laughs> punch to end the show. Um, I actually only have one other point. And, yeah. um, you know, we, we started to say a little bit. Uh, this, one's, this one's tough because in my memory, Michael Bean was really good in this movie. Yeah. No. And I really like so, Michael Bean in a lot of movies. He's, a, he's one of the best parts of The Abyss. He's um, one of the best parts of Aliens. He's Tombstone, I love man. Michael Bean a lot. He's amazing Tombstone. in Tombstone. Yeah, Michael Bean's great in this movie. I, it's not. He's not bad. Let's start there. He's not yeah. bad. He does not like necessarily bring the movie down. But I do watch it and think. I feel like someone else maybe could have landed this a little bit yeah. harder. Yeah. And to be fair, I, my point is actually not Michael Bean. It's that. Some of the acting and writing comes across as a little stilted, especially the dialogue. I don't think it super negatively impacts the movie, um, but it's noticeable. And and I think it does hold it back. And I do think like even Cameron 15 years later, I think would have written those characters a lot better. Yeah. Um, and certainly just another screenwriter, I think would have written those characters a lot better. Um, and even where the characters succeed, you kind of hinted at it earlier. Some of the dialogue you do kind of just like, either laugh or, or clench or just, you're, you're just like, mm, okay. Okay. Um, and Michael Bean, I think is just the most noticeable at not selling a lot of the stupid dialogue. Yeah. Um, it just, it just kind of hangs there and you're like, okay, this, 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 I don't know about this again. I don't think he's bad. I love him in so many other movies and in my memory, he was so good in this movie and that might be the problem in my memory. I was thinking of how great he was in this movie in the same way as those other movies. And so returning to it after a few years, I thought, Oh, he really isn't that um, he doesn't stand out in this movie is what I would say. I don't yeah. leave the movie thinking about Michael Bean at all. No. I think about Arnold Schwarzenegger. I think about Linda Hamilton. I think about the pacing and the action and then like 15 things down the list. I'm like, Oh yeah, Michael Bean was in this movie. So yeah, I don't know. I guess that's why I would say it's tough. It's tough. I feel bad. I feel bad yeah. for my boy. But uh, yeah, I don't know. That, that's where I. That's what how I felt last time coming out of this movie. Yeah, I had, I had both those down. Um, definitely, I'm just like I don't really know what Michael Bean's doing at certain points, but I also don't know how much of it's the script because while I think these characters are really interestingly and well thought out, 
how they express themselves doesn't seem to be. Because obviously he's supposed to be this person who lived in a hellscape. He's a resistance person. He has the weight of literally the universe, according at least in his mind, on his shoulders, right? And the idea that that person would be fraying and falling apart makes a lot of sense. But I don't necessarily know if he captures it with his brand of like line reading insanity because he just like yeah. goes from zero to a thousand a couple times. I'm like, that's <laughs> more funny than it is like, oh, this guy's fraying. Like I never like, yeah, really. Yeah. But I can tell that they thought through the character like the character makes sense how he's written and how he performs said lines. I don't know if it makes sense. Um, yeah. Felt definitely felt the same way with a number of Linda, Linda Hamilton lines. Um, so yeah, yeah, I'm with you. Yeah. I'm with you. I feel like what is Cameron it? gets um, a lot better um, later in his career writing the people that he's thought out. Right. Yeah. I, I will say, uh, and, well, and except for it's Titanic incredible and avatar. It's what's well, incredible that I'm about to say anything negative about James Cameron, but Dialogue has just never been a strong suit. That's and... how you scatter the roaches. Okay, okay. Anyway, we didn't have we, to go. You didn't have to go right for it. Um, honestly, the only movie of his I can think of that doesn't have any dialogue that I find laughable is Aliens, um, which sure. I'm not totally sure if he wrote. He did write. Yeah, he did write. Okay, but other than that, even the movies of his I love. He he just he just has weird oh, no. dialogue sometimes. No, in Aliens they have the drill sergeant being like, "Look into my eye." Oh, uh, forgot about that. There are, there are about lines that. in that movie. <laughs> anyway. Yep, yep, yep. You're right, you're right. Uh, I think maybe it's that the main character doesn't have that many cringy lines in it. Yeah, so I sort of yeah. give that a pass. But but yeah, I, he, he's, it's just not a strength. And that's okay. I mean, in my opinion, it's like, ah, he still makes movies that work. So yep. no worries. But but yeah, I agree. And uh, they're, still good. they're still good characters. So yeah, you know. Yeah, I agree. Anything else for why this movie doesn't work? Yeah, I got two quick ones. Um, the sex scene, I have, and and I don't mean like that. Are there you, is a, are you just a are you just a prude, Mike? Do you just yeah. not, not like a good steamy motel scene from nineteen eighty four? What's wrong with you? Felt like a prude because it wasn't even that there's <laughs> sex or that they obviously they have to have sex, and it wasn't necessarily the aggressive degree to which he goes for nudity. It was just like the way it's shot generally how they seem to be having sex like there's just a number of things in that you disagree the with the mechanics the of the of the scene yeah it's just okay. kind of a strange okay. sex scene and it kind of again reminds me that i hate the 80s so uh, well uh, uh, it's funny you say that because that was going to be my response is yeah. uh, i was going to say i don't know if you accept this but i think that's it's one of I would agree in terms of it's one of the most dated scenes in the movie yeah yeah it 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 does feel very starkly of its time and you are like actually even in the 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 because you're right the abrupt and and kind of in your face nudity i think is also part of that that's a very like 80s way of doing that where it's just kind of like all of a sudden here you go and you're like okay i i guess uh i feel like we could have you know done this a little more subtly but here we are it's just happening and you can't you can't do anything about it yeah i i, I agree um Insofar as I, I do think it's very dated. I, I would yeah. I would agree with that. Yep. And then my last point was just uh one thing that doesn't really age well with the movie is the specific kind of fear concerning technology just doesn't really always feel relatable to me as a millennial. 
Um, Which is funny my, because my anxiety. I almost feel like we should have more fear of it, but we yeah, don't. <laughs> but I do. But it's not this kind of technology. It's not this sure. specific brand of nuclear war and AI that I'm afraid of. It's a lot more existential in a lot of ways. Um, yeah. So yeah, I don't know. There's just like the tech. Our, our progress will doom us um, in terms of like physical destruction because we. It, lay the seeds of nuclear holocaust like it i don't know why it just doesn't land with me as much as say bo burnham's inside strikes at my fear for technology as a millennial um can i the terminator can I offer, not as much can i offer a, a method to think about this because in yeah. one of the coolest comparisons i've ever heard and I'm, I'm not sure if you've read both of these books but you know i heard someone once talk about 1984 is a book that expresses the fear that you know, technology as a, as an evil force will come to destroy us and brave new world as a book, uh, expresses the fear that technology as a force of pleasure will come to destroy us. Mm. And the farther we get into the technological revolution, I think the latter has proven to be much more prescient. Yeah. Um, of course, who's to say maybe tomorrow we're going to, you know, the bombs are going to fly and then we're going to be right there. But you know, certainly I think we have felt more acutely that sense of, of you know, the addictive properties and the, and the parasocial properties and all of the ways that these things that are that, that we like them um, start to have this dramatic impact on how we live and how we think uh, it is maybe the more interesting way that technology as a fear has come up. So, yeah, I, I, I actually agree. Um, yeah, I think I that I nails it. Yeah. I mean, I don't have anything else to add. That, that was exactly, that was very well said, whoever wrote that article. Yeah. And I've always thought about, yeah, so I've always thought good. about that. Uh, yeah. That, you know, and, and frankly, not enough people read Brave New World because it is about that. Like, it's about, yeah. you know, our, the things that we love end up destroying us or the things that we grow that give us pleasure. We start to, you know, start to degrade our 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 humanity, um, which is a much more interesting take. I don't know if it would have fit into an action movie. But is a much more interesting take. I will I will stand by that. Uh, cool. Stray thoughts. I actually have incredibly few. I have maybe the fewest I've ever had. I don't really? even know why exactly. But uh, yeah, we'll just... So Mike and I have each prepared stray thoughts. We just, you know, stray thoughts. We'll just go back and forth. And uh, probably half of it will just be Mike talking because I don't have that much. But, uh, <laughs> I can't wait. But let's get into it. Um, is... Come with me if you want to live the best line in an action movie ever. I just want to, yeah. I, you know what? Coming off of us saying that Cameron sometimes struggles with dialogue, which I still stand by, he breaks out stuff like that that you just think, God damn, that's just so good. That's just so yeah. good. I just can't well, get it, over it. I, oh man. Yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of like the fact that, you know, he's well known for being a perfectionist dickhole, like generally yeah. unpleasant to work with. And yet, when you hear about, like, Arnold wanted to change it to I will be back instead of I'll be back, you're just mm-hmm. like, maybe he's just right a lot. <laughs> like <Yeah>. Because <laughs> I'll be back might be the second most B.A. line in an action movie ever, right? Yeah. Those, there's incredible. two great action lines in this movie, and you're just like, dang, he knows how to land a one-liner. That's pretty impressive. And that's hard. That That stuff comes across as stupid more often than you would think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and they would have made the movie not memorable, but... Just and, and even that line also come with me if you want to live also is the moment where you like you were saying where you understand Reese and you understand yes. and it's in tech noir and it's in the middle of that 
intense shootout and it's as Arnold's getting up again after getting shot point Blake. So it's just so many things convalescing right at that moment. It's just so good. Oh my gosh. I I can't get over that. Uh, What do you got? So this is a personal affront to me in my middle school years, but James Cameron's imagination of punk rock is ludicrous. And like no one dresses like the people in the opening scene of this movie dress. You were there in 1984. Bill Paxton has tire tracks drawn on his face. Like, really? Mike, 1984 was a real time. I'm just saying, maybe maybe it was real. We have no nothing else to go on. Can you not at least agree with me that we know he's like an uptight white dude, and that is probably just how he imagines punk rock is? Like I, you're not wrong. I, I think Tech Noir has some tough, yes. <laughs> tough costumes happening yes. as well. Um, hey, is this how people like to party and get down? <laughs> this is what the kids are doing. This is not my stray thought, but this is just because I said Tech Noir. It reminds me, and this is also stolen from the rewatchables, but it is so incredible when the police sergeant, she says, I'm in Tech Noir, and he just instantly says, oh, yeah, I know that club down on Mayberry Street or whatever. <laughs> that I, I just love that moment. That's a great '80s cop moment. I think um, I'm going to count that as a stray thought. What do you have next? Um, I always really, really like when studios get just something utterly wrong because I like eat the rich or whatever. But the yeah. fact that the studio thought this movie was going to suck and tried to sandbag it and then tried to take credit for it later, and James Cameron constantly reminds people that they were not helpful at all is like my favorite fact about James Cameron ever. Like, he is such a petty, like, in a good way, (laughs) asshole about how little help he got from the studio about making this a hit. But it's also just an amazing moment in studio history or film history. It's like, how did you think this would be bad? You guys suck at your jobs. I think the two best stories about that, um, the one is, is pretty much everyone knows this, but he... The studio, even after he finished the movie, because, because you know, before it was finished, maybe I could understand them being hesitant, but they saw the final cut and were like, this is going to bomb. This is terrible. No one's going to like this. So famously, they didn't screen it for press. Um, and so everyone, this was just, this was actually a huge, like, caught everyone off guard moment movie. Um, I'm trying to think if there's any recent example. Frankly, Iron Man might be the closest mm, where... Yeah. Um, it, and not that it even had low expectations. John Wick. But just that it had kind of no expectations. John Wick could be good too. Yeah. That yeah. No yeah. expectations. Um, not No one really paying attention to it. And then it comes out and is the sleeper hit. And everyone sees it. And the word of mouth is huge. Um, the other great story about that is that 10 years later, the original studio uh, was being really like like crappy about the, the rights when he wanted to make a sequel. And finally, he had to buy them out. Um, so that so that the studio I forget who didn't even make Terminator Two, and of course the insanely stupid part about that is that they bought they sold the rights for you know so many millions of dollars and missed out on a movie that made five hundred and eighty million dollars. Yeah, it's playing. ridiculous. They just like kept so betting insane. against James or James Cameron, and you're like, what are you guys doing? You're like, <laughs> at some point they should have realized money machine. <laughs> like, oh what my are gosh. You doing? Um, actually, I'll count that as my straight thought too. Mike, go ahead. I'm just gonna keep oh building off of yours and, and having. I'm gonna expand mine live as so we record. I've it's got great. I've got questions about Kyle Reese's training. So, like, <laughs> okay, did they 
did they train him? Did he have like courses on how to use phone books and stuff in the future? Because he's actually pretty prepared to go to the past, the, like going back to the past to use pretty arbitrary things that I can't imagine would have come up in like a post-apocalyptic setting where they're training him as like a, a shock troop. So I don't yeah. know. I'm just curious at what that was like. I don't know if you have frankly, any answers. It's a, <laughs> frankly, it's a plot hole because I think it's okay, except that he says he was born after, yeah, after the, the war. So, so then you suddenly think, you're like, wait, how, yeah, how does he know how to do anything? How does he know how to walk down the street? How to, how to you know, use money? I mean, they do actually make a joke of that when he holds up the huge wad of cash and is like, is this enough? But I mean, still, like, how does he know how to do anything? It just, it doesn't make sense. I, I totally agree with that one. Yeah, the, I, I didn't notice it for a lot of things, but when he uses the phone book, I was just like, what? <laughs> what do you? What well, you, and that how? one's noticeable because I think like a teenager today wouldn't know how to use a phone. I know. Book. I barely would know how, I to, use know how to use a phone book. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, that's a great point. Similarly, this actually is a stray thought, but it does build off of that a little bit. Um, so they send him back in time, right? So yeah. the way time works, they could have trained him for any num- amount of time before sending him back because they're just going to send him back to the same moment right yeah so should they not have done a lot more and like i have questions why they sent reese back at all and it's like well i guess john connor maybe knew that it was his dad so he sort of had to and i don't know that's a whole thing but i, I can't help but wonder shouldn't they have done like a lot of work before sending him back shouldn't they yeah, have, you would think because you know they could train him for literally years and then send them back to that exact same moment i just don't get it whatever um, yeah, well, there's got? the whole bit about they destroy the machine that sends people back right after they send Reese. Yeah. Or something. I'm not going to lie. You just shouldn't think about time travel movies. They're just yeah. a bundle of <laughs> plot holes. So, um, and it's all stuff I'm with that you. wraps <laughs> up nicely if you only consider this movie. Um, and then as as you get into, into the sequels, it just becomes ludicrous. So you're right. Ultimately, it's just like, eh, just don't think about it. Yeah, just, just yep. enjoy enjoy the ride. Uh, yeah, what do you got? so I got I got two that I'm gonna combine into the same one because it's it's the same kind of nihilistic blend. The first is this movie taking place in 2029 feels more plausible every day. Like it just <laughs> feels right. It's like yeah, okay, that that's fair. Um, <sighs> and then yeah. relatedly. The diner scene where everyone is being horrible to her as this 18-year-old waitress kind of makes me feel like the robots were right. And maybe yeah. humanity should be wiped out. So, good, <laughs> I, uh, good intro. That I, You know what? I, I had here, I have questions about the diner scene. Have you ever been around that many people who have been that <laughs> rude in your entire life? Like, every single person in that in that building just hates her. Just like viscerally, it's just it just awful. it just has and has no empathy for the fact that she's clearly doing too many things. Every one of them is just like so angry and rude, and I'm like, oh my god! Or it's just it's a diner full of Republicans. It's just the worst. Um, <laughs> I I also wrote. We're just gonna skip past that. I also wrote. Her friend says, "In a hundred years, who's gonna care?" Is this the worst attempt at making someone feel better ever? Yeah. Is that just? Yeah. That, that is just like. Like, if I was Sarah Cotter, I'd just say, wow, you do not know how to comfort people, do you? You are just a terrible friend. Uh, it reminds me yeah. of a it reminds me of a scene in the second Independence Day where they're flying away as England gets destroyed. And uh, 
what's his name? Oh, yeah. Um, I just blanked on his name. Oh, that's not good. Um, Gold, Goldblum? Goldblum is yeah. like, oh, I guess they just love destroying monuments because it blows up the Big Ben. And the girl next to him is just like, my parents lived in London. <laughs> and you're like, oh, no. So it's just one of those lines that you're just like, yeah, it's just not what you say to people right after something horrible is happening to them. I'm sorry. Mike, uh, you know, I, I just I just got a vision of how this podcast is actually going to end. We, we're going to oh. do the second Independence Day movie. Yeah. Because I'm for reasons that. that are murky, you and I have not even murky, just embarrassing. You and I have seen that movie and even talked we, about it. We watched it together john yeah and possibly the only people in the entire world who remember that movie uh, yes it's us man we gotta do that movie i and then probably in the show okay yeah uh, is it my go blah, blah, blah. uh no i think it's mine um okay the value of betting on yourself in especially in an industry like the film industry is pretty notable and i think this is like maybe the all-time example yeah, uh, James yeah. Cameron wrote this movie and sold it to Gail Ann Hurd, the producer, for $1 on the condition that he would be the director. Uh, and that obviously paid off for everyone involved. There's a universe where it doesn't. That is a huge risk for him. He Because yeah. this was a, a good script. And people, and actually studios were courting him for it. And, you know, a good script can make you hundreds of thousands of dollars and even yeah. millions. Um but he sold it for $1 because he wanted to be a director and he thought he had what it took. And I just think that's cool. That's just a cool story. I love it. It's like, wow, I love that, it. Worked, that did in fact work out. Of course, we don't hear of the like, you know, hundreds yeah. of times that went the other way. Yeah. It's <laughs> called survivors. For, for those in the audience, that's called survivorship bias. Look it up because it makes all of those. It makes every heartwarming story um, have an edge to it when you yep. really internalize it. But all the same, it's still a, a, a really good story i think so uh yeah go ahead um is lance hendrickson quietly a sci-fi god because i mean yeah alien i mean yeah and i forgot he was in this i don't know just kind of was one of those I, things where i was like oh that's the robot from aliens i'll even one up you slightly um because oh he was also Bill in piranha Pax too <laughs> was he yeah <laughs> that's incredible <laughs> That just that changes everything. I looked it up. I, I, I was gonna say, um, you know, talking about sci-fi legends that maybe people don't realize. Bill Paxton is in this movie. Oh yeah. Um, Bill Paxton is the only actor killed on screen by a Terminator, a Xenomorph, and a Predator, uh, which a lot of people know. Love what it. not a lot of people know is that Lance Henriksen is almost the only. Is sorry, Lance Henriksen almost it has the same credentials except that in this movie he is killed off screen by a terminator you don't uh. see the terminator kill him but otherwise i actually i honestly don't know when a predator kills him i don't love the predator movies that much except the first yeah. one but uh but obviously he was killed by the xenomorph in the second uh in aliens and then apparently he was killed by a predator and then this movie's killed by a terminator so yeah good on them man those guys uh they got something i i love those guys i'm with you uh, that was mine, so why don't you go ahead? Okay, so let's talk about the cops in this movie. Um, you already mentioned that they apparently know all the clubs and hang out at them and are just always smoking cigarettes and drinking bad coffee and there are stereotypes. But there are two scenes in particular that I just can't get over. The first is when the Terminator arrives and asks for Sarah Connor, the woman who is 
you know, in his station and has there have been people murdering women. I was going to say, it was name. also like on the news that people, yeah, it's yeah. not like, you know, privileged information. Everyone and knows it, this. And a guy comes in dressed like death, <laughs> barely speaks English. And this dude just is nonplussed about the whole thing. He just like doesn't care. Bad look for the police of L.A. And yeah, then the second great. one, when they are talking about this like unstoppable machine that's been hunting her. And his only explanation, sweet, sweet Lance Henderson, is he's probably on PCP. Like, is PCP really the, the bare best bones of his head? It didn't feel it till later, and you're like, really? really? Is PCP just like the black goo from Prometheus? It's just like the way the <laughs> cops explain mystical happenings. Like, oh, this guy punched through a window in a guy's chest because he was on PCP. Like, it just feels like it's dare incredible. to me. Like in Dare, I was told that every drug would like turn you into a rapist and a killer. And then you would die of HIV, and it's just like, well, you know, PCP, and this PCP guy became apparently. the Terminator. I can do anything. He was an assassin from the future and punched a car. I'll and be honest, a woman. made me want to try PCP. I was like, oh, <laughs> apparently, apparently, this is my method. This is where we're. This is where we're going. No, Drugs I, are bad. I agree. Okay. It's a tough beat. Um, my last one. I shouldn't have saved such a bummer. Oh no, I have two last ones. Never mind. So, so oh, uh, my next one um, is a little bit of a bummer, and I'm not sure how much we're gonna get into it. Apparently, there's a very well-constructed argument that Kyle and Sarah's relationship falls into the abduction as romance trope, uh, which is kind of yikes, which is kind of not Big great. Big yikes. Uh, that's all I got. I, I, don't, I, I, I don't feel qualified, nor... I don't know. If, if that's something you're interested in reading about, go into it. I'm sure it's right, and I'm sure there's a lot to find in here, but I, I just don't have anything to add. I'm like, yeah, that's probably notable. Yeah. It's kind of yeah. like the Princess Bride. You're like, let's not think about this relationship all let's that not, deeply. Let's just not. Let's just choose not to analyze this because it's horrifying. Yep. <laughs> but um, this is just a, a plot hole. I got a couple of plot holes I just want to throw out there. But sure. when the car crashes and the cops arrest Sarah and Reese, why does the Terminator run off? Like, why doesn't he just kill everybody? Yeah. Yeah, like what was the advantage of coming to the police station later? Well, I mean, yeah. I don't know. Doesn't he go away and like repair? So his it's the arm eye. eye Is that something? the idea that he has to repair his eye? Yeah, and and he does something to his hand too, right? Like he when yeah. he opens his arm up and he, I mean, it, it is murky and yeah and um yeah there there might be an argument because it is I guess the only time he like quote unquote retreats right. Yeah, where he's just like because otherwise, not even a police station full of armed police stops him. Exactly. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good really point. I never, I never thought about that. Yeah. Are you out? No, no. I have a couple. I have a few more. Um, first one. When asked about it during filming, Arnold called the Terminator "quote unquote" some shit movie I'm doing, uh, and he also <laughs> referred to it as just another. He also referred to it as just another B action movie. I just like that. Um, I love it. For what it's worth, apparently his opinion changed when he saw the 20 minutes of the first cut. And he was like, and after 20 minutes, I realized this was something I'd never seen before. But yeah. uh, I guess while yeah. filming it, he was he was That's a little funny. bit out. So uh, what'd you got? Um, the F.U. asshole bit for, with the Terminator picking his response is like fantastic video game crap. And I love it. It's great. Um, you know, it's weird. Uh Kind of tangenting to... I'm going to count this as another one of my stray thoughts. I'm just tangenting off you. This is great. Yeah. Uh, two weird things about that. One, uh, the idea that the, the Terminator's flesh is rotting 
is kind of interesting and never comes up again in the entire yeah. in the entire series. Yeah. And I just always think that's weird. Um, second thing is that is actually the most egregious. Like, oh, that doesn't look like Arnold Schwarzenegger face. Um, yep. In the whole movie, because uh, it speaks as him, and you're like, ah, I, I, I don't know, I don't know about that one. Uh, but yeah, what you got? Yeah, that goes right into this one. Um, the bio material being the only thing that can come through the portal just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make yeah. sense with the Terminator. They try to throw in that whole it rots, so it's like kind of real flesh. But the idea that the like, why couldn't Reese bring a gun? Because apparently underneath that flesh is a whole bunch of biomechanics and metal. You know, why didn't they wrap a gun in biomass? And then, yeah, yeah, I just don't really get it. You know, the Terminator superhuman aim and processing also seems to just not work in certain moments, especially yeah. when Sarah might die. And then it also, you know, takes him three seconds to pick a response from a list of responses. And you're like, <laughs> oh, you can identify human beings through a wall and like instantly shoot them but without seeing them. But you can't like pick what you're going to say. I don't know. Yeah. There's just like a number of things like that. But the biomaterial in particular I'm just like I don't think this actually makes any sense. So yeah, <laughs> there it I, is. I, yeah, it, it's true. Uh, so yeah, this is my last point. Uh, we mentioned earlier they did not screen this movie for critics, and so there's a lot of you know missing reviews. Roger Ebert never, as far as I know, did a written review, but he does have on on the show that he did with Cisco and Ebert. Uh, they do talk about the movie because it became such a big movie that they they actually do review it. I encourage you all to watch it because they are very perplexed about this movie and it's a joy to watch. Yeah, <laughs> they love it. clearly do not understand. Like, like it's possible I'm reading between the lines, but when you watch it, they are seemingly just a little bit like, why is this movie making $78 million? What, what is this? What do we do with this? They don't even dislike it. They're just kind of confused and it's just sort of a joy to watch. Yeah. Um, that's awesome. That's my last one. Love it. Yeah. It's, it's, it's great. Well, I've got one last one, too, and that is that yeah, uh, Reese, Reese is really bad at not being thrown into an insane asylum or convincing people to listen to him. And honestly, if he got taught how to use a phone book, he probably could have been given an emotional intelligence class or something. Just yeah. anything to handle an obvious situation that will come up, which he will have to explain what's happening to people in a reasonable way that doesn't get him completely locked up. And instead, he just immediately starts shouting and yelling and like throwing a fit like a psychopath. And you're like, yeah, good job, bud. You're, no one's going to listen to you. It, it sort of makes you question the leadership and wisdom of future John Connor. Because yeah. like he could have taken time. literally two minutes and been like, hey, so by the way, when you go back, it's going to be very different. Probably don't want to volunteer a lot of the stuff about the future thing. They're just not any authority figure is just going to throw you into an insane asylum. Just say some, make up something else, like literally anything else, and that would probably be yeah. a better move. That's a. I mean, I did that in thirty seconds. I, I think. I think he could have used that. That's all. It would have helped. Would have helped. It would have helped. <laughs> okay, Mike. Well, uh, that kind of wraps up this first part of the episode. Uh, stick around after the break. We're going to get to a few essays that Mike and I have each prepared. So hang tight.
Hey everybody, welcome back. Uh, in this next part of the podcast, Mike and I have each prepared an essay that kind of dives deep into some aspect of the movie, or maybe just a tangent coming off of it. And then we'll have some questions and discuss some stuff between the two of us. Um, Mike, I think I'm going first. You are correct, okay. sir. Sounds good. Here we go. So likely under the influence of Back to the Future, which was a movie that I rewatched so many times, the VHS tape started to break down. I I used to love time travel stories. Essentially anything about going to the past or going to the future or opening a time portal or whatever, they all just completely gripped me. I could not get enough of those stories. And if you watch and read enough about time travel, you start to notice that there's a few key differences in how different stories treat it. In Back to the Future, for example, Marty has the ability to change things about the past and subsequently change things about the future. And those changes ripple outwards in time, affecting things like his own existence or even just his family's standard of living. And while that style of time travel is probably easier to write and is certainly something that people can wrap their heads around, apparently it's not actually very, quote-unquote, realistic, insofar as any time travel story is realistic. This is all, frankly, a little bit over my head, but according to people smarter than me, the rules of the universe we live in state that anyone who is to time travel would, by necessity, only be able to cause or bring about exactly the same things which had already happened. In other words, if you were to go back in time to change something, let's say prevent a terrorist attack, you would at best be totally ineffective and at worst actively cause the thing you were trying to prevent. And all of this brings us to the Terminator and to one of the most important background tensions over this movie, but also maybe the entire series. It gets expressed several times over the movies, In this movie, it's said by Kyle Reese. He's talking to Sarah Connor, and he says this. The future is not set. There is no fate but what we make for ourselves. The tension is that we are watching a film whose plot explicitly rests upon the premise of the future being a knowable, tangible, preordained thing. This is particularly true if you only take the first movie into account. The sequels create this kind of wild array of branching stories and timelines, but on its own, the first film presents a perfectly self-closing time loop. The machines send a Terminator to kill Sarah Connor before John Connor is born. The humans send Kyle Reese to protect her. Kyle and Sarah fall for each other. He makes her pregnant with a future John Connor. They manage to destroy the Terminator. Kyle does not survive. Sarah goes off to raise the future savior of humanity, who will one day send Kyle back in time to protect Sarah. Notice that the plot summary opens that classic time travel chicken and egg situation. One of my other favorite time travel stories is the video game, The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time. In that game, there's this side quest that explores the same sort of situation. The protagonist, Link, who's kind of hopping across a seven-year time gap, finds an old man at a windmill who complains about a little boy that taught him a song which drove him mad. The old man then teaches Link that same song. Link travels back in time seven years, finds the old man, and teaches the song back to him, thus becoming the little boy that the old man had originally complained about. In Ocarina of Time, we're kind of left to wonder, where did the song originate from? And in The Terminator, we're left to wonder, where did John Connor originate from? As cool as that rabbit hole may be to talk about, 
I actually think the more central tension in the Terminator's time travel plot is the concept of free will. In the mucky world of theology that Mike and I hail from, free will and predestination are actually very loaded terms with centuries of debate behind them. But skipping all of that, I think there's this fascinating question at the heart of this that so many of us will at some point dwell upon. Am I really in control of my own life? If you think about time travel as presented in The Terminator, which again is kind of the most accurate apparently version of what this would look like, then you start wondering in the back of your head if any of the characters could have behaved differently. What if Sarah had not found Kyle attractive? What if Kyle had gotten arrested as soon as he arrived in LA and never met and never saved Sarah? Since the events of the film cannot happen unless they happen in that exact way, it leads you to feel that the characters have no agency, no ability to react differently. In short, it feels like they may not have any free will. And this probably seems somewhat academic, but there's a real reason to think about it in your life. For centuries, philosophers have argued about the nature of free will. But to oversimplify, much of the argument starts from a position that a predetermined universe is probably the default starting place. In other words, it's much more difficult to imagine a universe in which your choices and actions truly emanate from you and not from the set of circumstances that created you. Growing up, I was very familiar with this discussion, even though all the terms were different. In the Christian church, a massive theological debate has raged over the idea of predestination. Again, it's not worth going into the specifics, but suffice it to say the tension was fundamentally the same as what I was talking about before. Do you have control over your own decisions and actions, or has God, the universe, circumstances, whatever, predetermined everything that's going to happen? As a kid in the church, watching people respond to that question was pretty fascinating, because a lot of strong thinkers became impassioned about this topic. They would argue vehemently that free will was a prerequisite to being able to love and exist in a right relationship, blah, blah, blah. Or others would argue vehemently that God must be in total control of the world, so all actions and decisions must come from his perfect will, blah, blah, blah. Neither side tends to find any merit whatsoever in the opposition. It's a very, very heated argument. And in the midst of all of that, I think back to that quote. The future is not set. There is no fate but what we make for ourselves. As should maybe be obvious from this entire podcast, I'm perfectly happy sliding deep into the world of pedantic and meaningless conversations. But this is maybe one of the only avenues where I think the best answer actually is a form of why should I care? Because in a sense, I'm not actually sure that we should care. Certainly I know I did for many years. I actually can tell you that occasionally it even kept me up at night, wondering if evil people could control being evil and good people can control being good, wondering if I could control what I did or where I went or who I was. But I remember the moment when someone finally asked me, in the midst of all of these heady theological and philosophical questions, whichever one is true, how does that actually affect you today? What does that actually change about how you want to live your life? I kind of think that's what the quote from the Terminator is getting at. Predestination and free will are well and fine to think about, 
But part of the call of spirituality, as Mike and I often repeat, is to live fully in the present. And part of that presence is accepting things that you can control and accepting things that you can't. I think back to that debate and I consider how much both sides might need to take in some truth about living from the other. Predeterminists who might resist acknowledging one's ability to influence the world and proponents of free will who might dismiss the effects of circumstances and context in determining your life's outcome. Ultimately, I believe our call is to find the balance between those extremes, to be able to exercise our influence in some arenas, and to be able to accept our inability to control the world in other arenas. I'm John. I'm a big old nerd. I mean, you are. Yeah. So is this where we're going to, are you going to talk about your Calvinism? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone, uh, it's like a dodgeball game and God just kind of numbers people off and some of them go to heaven. Some of them burn in hell for eternity and conscious torment. Um, yeah. I would have really appreciated if any Calvinist had ever used dodgeball as a metaphor. Uh, is that no, real? No, but they should. It's pretty accurate to how they, they understand should, yeah. the universe. If you're Calvinist listening to this. We just gave you all the ammunition you have. Great made. sermon metaphor. <laughs> no, I love that. Um, you know, and I actually think, you know, I was like, where is John going with this? And he landed exactly where. And it's actually pretty interesting because it, it just came up in another context recently. You know, I was talking, I think, with my brother and another one of my friends about the show Devs and... I don't remember which one, but I think it was like my brother brought up the idea of how distasteful kind of that show made him feel early on. And I think he stopped watching it because it is about determinism. And like one of the central characters is deterministic, this idea that it's set and how that's just unsettling. And I remember just having a really good back and forth about, you know, and I have to challenge myself on this, too, because I lean so strongly into the free will camp theologically, but how important it is to be pushed on at least a little bit where if we believe in things like systematic oppression, right? Um, the idea of slavery and people being born into a space where they have lost their destiny for reasons completely outside of their control, right? Because of corporate evil, then you have to believe in determinism, at least to an extent, right? You have to believe if you are going to hold those ideologies and not become someone who's just pulling yourself up by your bootstraps in a horribly toxic way. You have to have a balance, which is kind of what you're talking about. And then I always land in the same spot that you did, which is, and ultimately all of those conversations only matter in as much as they change positively how we exist in the world right now. Right. Um, yeah. Being able to find the truth of recognizing that some people don't have a choice in the horrors they've experienced and then the horrors that they cause or not because of that. But also to recognize at the same time that I get to pick how I respond to things that are outside of my control. Yeah. So I loved your essay. That's all I'm trying to say. You're a huge nerd and yeah. uh, you're Thank probably you. going to go to hell, but it doesn't matter because you couldn't, you couldn't okay. have impacted that. So apparently I had no, I had no say yeah. in the matter. That's, that's how it, that's how it plays out. No, I, I, I appreciate that. And, you know, I, to even build on that a little bit, this also, I, I didn't have time to get this into the essay, but 
this also comes up a lot talking about history and um you know there's actually this 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 is an oversimplification but for a long time historical writing tended to focus on on what we call like great man theories so in other words looking at history and tending to think of it in terms of you have exceptional individuals that come along and change yeah. everything so you have Karl Marx comes and writes the communist manifesto and suddenly the political landscape of the 20th century is defined um in the last 30 40 years probably there's been a slow sort of pushback against that and we've kind of arrived at a place where most good historians you'll talk to will argue strongly that that you should think of history in the context of of socioeconomic forces in other words if Karl Marx hadn't written the communist manifesto someone would have written something similar because he wasn't writing it from his own idea. He was writing it because of the circumstances that came up around him and because that's where things were moving. And to be honest with you, I've always struggled with both of these. And that's why maybe that's why I'm so interested in the idea of finding a balance. Um, But I do genuinely find that in terms of how I live my life, I do try to keep both of those perspectives in mind because, you know, there is a tremendous truth to looking at, at history and looking at the world now in terms of forces. And you talked about systematic oppression and racism and, and any number of things that it'd be very easy to say, Oh, well, that's just something that, you know, that, that can be overcome by an individual. But I think that's, that's ridiculous. It's like, well, no, you, you know, you, you are, you can be driven by these forces that are, far beyond your ability to control. And and I think it's funny because we, we talk about that in the terms of, of oppressed people being up, you know, pushed by those forces, which is true. But similarly, I think even the oppressors are driven by those forces without realizing it. The people who think they're in control are just as swept up in whatever these, you know, cultural, again, socioeconomic things happening are. Um, but at the same time, I think there's a there, there's something important about recognizing, but I can have influence at least over myself. Yeah. I can change. You said it. I can change how I respond to something. I can change. I can be part of this movement. I, I can I can engage with these forces in a very real, tangible way. Um, so again, I, I think it's you know there's a complexity there, but ultimately the answer is simple. How do you want to live in the world? What kind of force do you want to be to the people and the situations and the circumstances around you and you know again there's that part of that balance is i'm not gonna i can't control everything i'm ultimately i am at the mercy of all these things i don't have control over but i can control some things and i can have influence in some ways and whether that's also part of that deterministic thing i guess part of what we're saying is it's just that conversation becomes invalid or sorry is reaches the end of its value yeah. at some point. And ultimately you have to kind of move past that to figure out how to live in the world, I guess. Yeah. I'm right there with you. I mean, I honestly, I think it almost immediately becomes unvaluable for a lot of people, but, um, but yeah, in, in, in this is a half baked thought, but there's even a part of me that wonders if the whole point of like spiritual practice. And when we talk about presence and trying to learn how to be present and deconstructing old tapes, like, there's almost a worldview inherent to kind of how I'll speak for myself, how I often talk about that stuff 
where it's like the first half of your life is largely deterministic in the sense of you are playing tapes and engaging with reality in the present moment, often through filters that were ingrained in you from your environment growing up, from your experiences, from these things that you largely had no control of your, over as a kid. And so much of the spiritual work is getting to the point where you can actually respond to a stimuli appropriately in a way that you choose, right? Yeah. And it's almost like moving beyond determinism to the point where I actually can believe to some degree I am actualizing free will. I am actually making a choice and not just playing the same damn cycle of anger and resentment and fear that I have was given at a point that I can't even remember it. I've played out my whole life. So, but again, yeah. I'm not sure how valuable even those terms are to the actual living daily moments of our life. As someone who became obsessed with cinema in the late 2000s, genre mashups were ever-present in my film canon. Most often, these came in the form of quasi-parodies. Films like Shaun of the Dead or Hot Fuzz that honored genres like the zombie one or the buddy cop one by creating a homage to them that simultaneously winked at the fans and poked fun at their beloved source material. And I adored these movies. They were fun, playful, and self-aware in a way that I found just incredibly enjoyable as a fan of these genres that they were mimicking. It was nice to hear someone behind the camera kind of say, hey, I've noticed these tropes and gimmicks too but still love the films that perpetuated them. However, while I love these movies, I can't really say that they were all that innovative. That is, I can't say that they really created something new, as much as they named and played with established expectations and stereotypes. Which, to be clear, is totally fine. In fact, I think it's really good. I don't think innovation was what they were going for, and I don't think every film needs to be innovative. But at the same time, it's that recognition that always leaves me so in awe after watching The Terminator. I think this movie, maybe more than any other I've seen, understands and desires creative innovation to both honor and create something new from the genres that it inhabits. At its core, The Terminator is a mashup of the sci-fi and slasher horror genre of the 70s. In particular, the films, as we've mentioned, of John Carpenter, like Halloween. These lay the foundation of Cameron's film. It's kind of one of those things that once you see, you can't unsee, which we've discussed, like I said, multiple times. The dread created by an unstoppable killer who, as the film progresses, is increasingly tasked with more and more impossible barriers to his mayhem, set up and overcome in a way where we as the viewer learn with the characters in each set piece that they actually aren't as impossible as we thought, that this monster knows no barriers. The holy crap feeling when said monster is presumed dead about 60 times because, quite frankly, he should be dead about 60 times, only for him to arise and keep pressing on, creating that, oh my lord, what are we going to do, it can't die sensation. I mean, these are the heartbeat, the lifeblood of the Terminator. From the sawed-off shotgun blast to the chest in the club, to the grotesque repair scene, to the police station, to the final car chase, the explosion out of which the machine marches forward in relentless pursuit, these horrifying and thrilling scenes are pulling from the exact same toolbox of the genre that clearly influenced Cameron so greatly. 
And in that sense, James Cameron proves that he understands the first ingredient of real innovation, a deep love of and understanding for what influenced you. He clearly remembers and adores how these tropes, gimmicks, these tools impacted him, and he wants to put them to use in his own work. However, herein lies where Cameron breaks from that trend. Herein is where innovation takes place, where the Terminator moves from parody and homage to something truly unique, something new. Because he doesn't merely repackage these tools, nor does he stop at parroting or updating them. He employs them with excellence and a clear intention to use them for something new, in a different area of passion, towards an unmet need in a different genre that hadn't felt such tools applied to them before. He takes the tools of the horror slasher genre and applies it to another one that clearly uniquely fascinated him, one that he also loved and understood, one that maybe the original masters of the films that inspired him never even considered overlapping with. He applies them to the big ideas, underlying anxieties, and profound reflections of science fiction. With just that small reorientation, The Terminator becomes a slasher film that says, does, and asks very different things than those of the 70s. It becomes an entirely different and wholly unique piece of art in its own right. The unstoppable figure isn't supernatural. In fact, it represents the natural conclusion and evolution of man's own folly, their own desire to create, returning to them, growing beyond them, seeking out to get them. His unkillability isn't mystical, it's by human design, the result of unintended consequences produced from humanity's ingenuity colliding with their war-obsessed realities, creating machines that move beyond their own level of consciousness, laying the seeds of their own self-destruction and their pursuit for more. James Cameron takes what he loved about both genres, applies them with excellence, but at the same time redirects them, intertwines them, and pulls from them a movie with an entirely different purpose and its own unique ideas than the films that inspired him. And what he creates, quite frankly, rules. A film with the adrenaline, action, and fear of the slasher movie that somehow, at the same time, provokes the same anxiety, awe, and provocation of thought and open-ended questions of the best sci-fi films. A slasher movie that excites as much as it horrifies, thrills as much as it makes you think, and creates a standard to be followed for artists for years to come. In The Terminator, James Cameron creates something that, in its parts and thoughts, pays homage to what came before, but in its whole, becomes something entirely unique. Meeting a need we didn't even know we had until we saw it, producing something truly innovative in the most awesome sense of the word. Can we just take a second to acknowledge that we've done, this is our first James Cameron movie, and somehow, against all odds, you have been 
the one singing the praise of Mr. Yeah, Cameron I really, I really, me. it's actually. You wrote a whole essay about how amazing he is at this. I'm, I was just sitting there in bliss. I was just like, it's well, actually a, this is like the a, sun shining on my face. It's a psychological attack. I did it on purpose. I was like, really like what will really? unsettle John the most? Like what will throw him off his game? And it's like, what if I come out and act like I never have ever criticized James Cameron? <laughs> You're, so you're gonna gaslight yeah. me now, John? Like, I don't know what you're talking about. Yes. I love James Cameron. You just never give him the praise he deserves. He's amazing. <laughs> I've always been down <laughs> on him. It's true. Everyone knows. I've always said it. Uh, no, obviously, I think that was great. I, I was there for it. I think, you know, I, I think that there's. It's so fascinating because when you, I, I have in fact read a lot about the way he makes films and the way he approaches things and stuff like that. Um. I think the, the really interesting thing is in the line of what you're talking about with innovation too, is that there's a certain restlessness to how he approaches filmmaking. Um, you know, we mentioned earlier looking at his filmography, there's these, there, you know, he's not a prolific no, director yeah. and that lack of prolificness is obviously only intensified in, in the later part of his career. But there's actually a pretty interesting reason for that. I think it's, he gets obviously obsessive about these projects, but he also is someone who is very much willing to wait until he has something yeah. new that he can yeah. do, right? And if and even in his early projects, when you look at them, um, you know, uh, Terminator, Aliens, uh, The Abyss, T2, just those four movies, every one of them is a step up, is a step into something different and something a little bit bigger and with a couple different challenges and a different way of looking at it. You know, we said earlier, too, he's one of the all-time great sequel directors, which is funny because he only has two, Terminator 2 and Aliens. But those are two of the best sequels ever made. And the reason why, getting to what you're talking about, Mike, is that desire, that that almost compulsion for innovation. He doesn't want to make Alien again. He doesn't want to make the Terminator again. When he makes the sequel, he says, what can I change? What can I bring yeah. to this that isn't what those old things were? Yeah, um, man. And that's just that's just unique, I guess. That's I mean, I, I don't even know if it is or should be, but just looking at the rest of the landscape, it's like no one else really does that. Other people think, well, it's okay to just make the same thing again and change a couple things or whatever. But he's just committed to, you know, I'm making a sequel to Alien. I'm not gonna make it a horror movie. Why would I? Alien is a perfect horror movie. I'm making a sequel to the Terminator. Why would I make that a slasher movie? Terminator works as a slasher movie. Let me make it an action. You know yeah, what I mean? Absolutely. Um yeah, it's so. Yeah, I don't know if you have. Well, it's funny because we drew comparisons between Terminator and John Wick for financial reasons, but I actually think it's like that's the negative side of that, where it's like, oh, we had this hit, so we got more money, sure. and we made the same movie but bigger, and that the second one works. I love the second John Wick, but then you see what happens without innovation, and you get the third John Wick, and it's just like, well, how can we make a different movie without changing anything? And it's like, well, we'll just make it more convoluted and even bigger budget. And at some point, you're just like, why am I watching these films, right? Um, it's actually yeah. my biggest gripe, if I can not hate too much on the Marvel f you know, franchise, but it's that there is a lack of innovation in those movies. Um, they awed yeah. us with technical coming to life of heroes. And at this point, I just watched those, and I'm like, it's not doing anything new. It's repackaging often yeah. the same thing over and over and over again and that's why i haven't seen one in theaters in a pretty long time actually so yeah there's something just it's odd amazing about cameron doing that uh, but go on 
absolutely absolutely it's odd because i'm about to mount a defense of marvel movies which just feels unfamiliar but i think and again mike and i actually i think both enjoy those Mm -hmm. movies um i i I would actually maybe push back just insofar as you can make a pretty decent argument that the entire thing of marvel is like the new thing yeah like the interconnected almost treating movies like tv shows um, I think I but think viewing them. Yeah, oh, yeah, I think the run to like the Infinity Wars and stuff like that. I don't even remember what the last one of that was called. Um, but Endgame. Come Endgame. On, there you go. So I think that is like on kind of like you're saying on a large helicopter view of it is innovative as heck. But if you f- if you land the helicopter into any single story, you're going to find the same plot repackaged with different characters. Right. And honestly, yeah. the same general cgi concept too of building to a final boss fight that is like out of this world expensive it's funny you didn't say what i think is the most egregious one you'll find the same tone yes none of them different tone at all it's the iron man jokey sarcastic lighthearted. i mean and that's not bad but there is a sense of like wow are we never gonna try but that's what's so bonkers about how to get back on topic that's what's so bonkers about how innovative cameron is and it's what you were just pointing out the tone of terminator 2 and terminator 1 are so wildly different and i mean and that's from the casting on down to cast the little snarky kid in it to the way it's written to the way that the action is shot to the lighting of the film it's tonally a completely different movie a completely different genre and like you said, he's always being like, I don't want to just make the same thing, but bigger. I want to make something innovative. And that's awesome. I mean, it's yeah. just, it's a deep understanding of, of how to do that, that I really appreciate. Well, and to take that earlier example a little bit further as well, you know, we said John Wick 2 was actually a delight to yeah. watch because it was fun to watch John Wick with a bigger budget. And the same way, if he had made a Terminator 2, uh, 10 years later, that was the same movie, but with a bigger budget, that would have been a fun what movie. A world. That, yeah. I would have, I would have, I would have enjoyed that. But the key thing is I know who James Cameron is and I don't know who the guy who directed John Wick yeah. is. Yep. So ultimately it's like that may or may not have been good for the series, but as a creative person, I think there's something so much better about that, that restlessness and that even as I say that as someone who's deeply distraught that he's made one movie in 20 years, um, I still do kind of think think that it's like, yeah, well, you know what? That comes from ultimately a good place that comes from, he is again, that restlessness, that desire to do something new to, to not just retread the same ground. Um, this is a really small example, but it's something we didn't mention yet, so I just feel like bringing it up. Um, this even comes into how he makes his movies themselves. One of the coolest, one of the best documentaries you'll ever see is The Making of the Abyss. If you haven't, highly recommend it. I'm pretty sure it's on YouTube for uh, free. Um, because The Abyss was a hellish movie to make. It was all of these technical problems. Um, I probably shouldn't go too much into it because I'm sure we're going to do The Abyss at one point, but there's this great story that one of the, or one of the effects guys says where he says, talking to, to James Cameron, one of the cool ways he approaches special effects is he says, keep changing the effect. So he says, you know, we'll cut together. Like there's the shot where there's these submarines, these little submarines approaching this big submarine. And he's like, so what we'll do is we'll have one shot that is miniatures, mm. right? 
and you know it's miniatures and it's this smoke filled room so it's meant to look like water and whatever but then the next shot we'll switch to a a matte painting or something like that and then we'll do that for a couple shots but then the shot after that we'll switch to an actual submarine and we'll keep we'll keep flipping those between the three mm. and he's like the the theory goes that you know right as you start to i think james cameron himself says this he's like right as you start to think oh, okay i know how they do this we, we switch it on you and then it's like oh but that can't be a model because i can see that you know yeah and yeah i i think that relates just because it's that same idea of you know, A, understanding the way people think and understanding what people are bringing to this. But B, you know, um, having the, this intuition about, I guess, about innovation and about changing things and about kind of keeping on your feet and what's new, what's a different way that we can do this where it can look slightly different and where it can kind of catch people off guard a little bit. I guess that's ultimately what I'm saying is that his movies are, if nothing else, never predictable. Yeah. He doesn't, you know, he, he, just in, in macro terms. I don't know what his next project is going to look like. Um, I don't know what, how he's going to approach these problems. And that's what makes him so creatively rich, I think, from my perspective. Okay, Mike, uh, we have our final questions for each other. Uh, I'm just going to okay. go. I can do that. Yeah. The host. I take the mic from you yeah, all the time. You won't okay. shut up. <laughs> yep, it's great. Uh, so, Mike, my question for you is let's bump this movie's timeline up to today. Okay. Sarah Connor is a 19 year old in 2021, mm. a Terminator sent back to find and yeah. kill her. Given social media and technology, do you think his job will be easier or harder? <laughs> I think, because because you know, let's presume he could use he could use computers, and and you know he could just start googling Sarah like maybe you know she's not on Facebook or something. But he he, I just feel like it would actually be a much more straightforward story. It would I feel be, like a lot of the tension. But I do feel like he'd go viral pretty quickly, and then people be like, "Oh, it's a Terminator!" Like saying I'm arriving by, and like you'd be able to track him better. Like Sarah Connor, if she was a good social media user, would always know where where uh, he is, right? So you're saying like the punks at the beginning, someone would have had their yeah, phone out. Yeah, live streaming. There's that, like, you know, all over the, yeah, all over. But like, know, even when he's like yeah, driving so, down the highway, like, you know, some kids just like, oh, I just saw the Terminator. Someone, Whoa. <laughs> someone shot a world star yeah, in the exactly. back. <laughs> um, it's a mixed bag. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it just evens out, you know, and then maybe at the same sure. time, she's so stuck on her TikTok like the kids these days that she just gets murdered. What a, what a what a boomer take! I also do um, enjoy imagining how much more useless Kyle oh, Reese yeah, would have been. Yeah, because he wouldn't have a What's phone. What's a Twitter? And <laughs> he's just walking around. He's like, "How do I buy that?" He doesn't have a credit card. No one has cash anymore. Like, well, just he think that about from? like yeah, how inept the majority of the boomers we know are at navigating modern technology and the internet, and then just have that to like twice that degree i'm actually being very ungenerous to boomers yeah. it's really not probably that much different um but we'll say twice that it's, it but it's, it's yeah. bad yeah it's so like yeah, he'd struggle he'd struggle it wouldn't be great yeah i'd watch this movie netflix yeah. where are you at let's do it 
I'd watch a reboot of this. In yeah, I mean, well, yeah, not really though, because they've tried that kind of a couple times and it always sucks. But that's true. I don't. Well, and he's never been involved, which I guess gets to what yeah, we were talking about. Yeah, I don't think he wants that. to be involved. He's like, I don't have another story, <laughs> yeah, so I'm he's good. out. Yeah. There's a lot of baggage with that franchise. Uh, what you Um, yeah. So this one is the elephant in the room. This is for the fans. They've been waiting for me to ask you this the entire episode. So John, same shindig as yours. Get in the mood. This is all happening in your timeline. How do you feel as the young, or no, I guess, middle-aged John Connor sending your dad back in time to bang your mom? Why? (laughs) Gotta do it for the fans. You didn't have to do it. You have to do it for the fans. We all knew you were going to do it, but you didn't have to do it. You had to do it for the fans, John. You're are you are you literally saying that you were predetermined yeah. to have to <laughs> yep, ask this, that's that you could not have you could not resist your fate your and destiny? you were predetermined to be uncomfortable answering this question. <sighs> Time is a full. I a mean, flat he obviously circle. did not tell. He <laughs> obviously he did not tell Kyle that it was his father. I know. He, I don't think Kyle knew. I think I'm John saying you knew. How do you feel, uh, John Connor? Uh, conflict. <laughs> Probably, probably some combination of conflicted or gross. What I what I like to imagine though is like John Connor interacting with Kyle. Yes, yeah. like before because he's not going to tell him. Hey, and bro. obviously they they get if not quite close, they actually you know they at least work together and stuff. I just feel like it. I'm awkward. not going to lie. I just feel like he, the weirdest part of that story is that Kyle Reese seems to like look up to John Connor as a father figure. And yeah. that's really, yeah. really something. <laughs> that's 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 weird. Even though it is easier, I mean, there actually might be something that makes sense there because it's easier to imagine interacting with my not with my dad, who will be my future dad, if I'm way older. Sure. Because I get to sort of be like, you know, we're we're di- there's a distance naturally here, so this is fine. Uh, very similar, I incidentally to. Back to the Future. Um, God, I suddenly realized I'm not looking forward to the Back to the Future episode. No, just no of that one's way more uncomfortable. That's going to be a nightmare. That's, um, that's going to be my masterpiece, my mic drop. That's, that's going to be when I quit the show. Uh, but yeah, I actually have one last question, Mike, because somehow we never quite answered oh, this. Oh, yeah. Uh, Terminator, Terminator 2. Um, I think I enjoy rewatching Terminator 2 more. It's also more of a movie mm-hmm. I can throw on in the background and kind of just like pop mm-hmm. in because it's super long and its action sequences are just more modern and kind of more exciting at times. Yeah. I think if you're asking me which one is a more complete movie, it is definitely Terminator. Yeah. I you virtually took the words out of my mouth. I think Terminator mm-hmm. 1, uh, with one or two small points against it is nearly a perfect movie and self-contained just works so well yeah uh terminator 2 is a lot messier is a lot like like you know lots of things in it don't quite work and watching i think oh it's not quite right but the overall effect is very very strong the action is not only better the action is maybe the best action ever in any movie it's it's certainly a contender uh so yeah I, i i would Broadly agree. I think Terminator 2 is more easy to rewatch. What? Um, Terminator 1, I tend to think of as as, as a self-contained unit, a, a better... Yeah, movie. and I can't overstate um, enough like how many 
more times I've watched Terminator 2, and it's not because I particularly think I like it more, but because it is such an easy movie that if I'm working or like messing with something on my computer, I can just throw it on the background. And it's so enjoyable yeah. in that setting. Like, just so yeah. much fun. So, I, yeah, it's a great movie. Well, I'm sure we'll do it at some point, but I just felt the need to ask. Great question. It's, it's interesting. The second one, I think, has such a stronger cultural yeah. impact. That's interesting gauging people's responses to the first one. It almost got overridden, yeah. I would say. Historically, it's the same. you know, I think a lot of people, you know, both of us watched the second one yeah. first. I would say almost everyone it's, has. It's very point. similar to Aliens and Alien, where the sequel is a far more accessible movie. Um, and, yeah. you know, apart from the chest bursting scene in Alien, I don't know many people who remember much of that movie. And a ton of them can tell me what yeah. Bill Paxton said. They talk about the action sequences, the robot fight at the end. I mean, it's just the same effect. Yeah, exactly. where it's just that's it's a, a great far example. more accessible yeah. movie because it's not trying to. It makes all of this weird that he did not also make Alien. Yeah. You know, like it almost feels like he should have. Uh, obviously, we've talked about it. I think Alien's a perfect movie, so I don't want yeah. that. But it's just weird. It's just interesting. But uh, but yeah. Well, good times, Mike. Thank you so much. Besides your last question for the conversation. You're welcome. Uh, you know, maybe we need to maybe we need to retire the final questions. Maybe you've maybe you've pushed. I'll it just work far. it into the top of the podcast. <laughs> cool. Cool. Love that. Well, thank you guys so much for listening. As always, I'm Jonathan Devine. I'm sorry, John's parents. I thought you were going to say your name, like something about, you know, I'm Mike yourself or, or you know. Thank you guys for listening. We'll see you on next episode. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everyone. By the way, I just wanted to let you know that John and I are actually going to be taking a few weeks off over the coming month. John's going to be traveling and I am getting ready for the birth of our next child. So we're actually just going to take a week off from recording, which will mean that the next episode is actually coming out in a month rather than the normal two week schedule. Uh, sorry for the inconvenience, and we thank you all for understanding, and we look forward to the next episode. <laughs>